I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom, promoting the call-in show, Bionic. I don't that's know what, subtle enough? That's just <laughs> shadowing. I know it's for or after yeah, shadowing. Yeah. Uh, it's great to have you back for another week of the Future Quake Show. We will do the plug here in a minute, but we first we need to plug did. our guest this week. <laughs> uh, we have a great new guest this week, uh, an author by the name of Jack Cashel, very popular author, very mm-hmm. uh, big-selling author, mm-hmm. uh, who's written a book called Popes and Bankers, and it's about the history uh, and ethics of uh, money, finance. Yeah. And uh, it is, a, to me, a very important book. I read the book, uh, and I was fascinated by it. I learned so much that I hadn't learned anywhere else about the history from the time of the Bible up to today and the formation of banking systems. It is a good book that goes along with, say, The Creature from Jekyll Island. Yeah. Uh, they really go together. It's funny you mention that because, that. you know, this, had a, this, had, this book had, well, this talk had a very similar effect on me. Uh, as as the creature from Jekyll Island did, really opened mm-hmm. my eyes to the, the uh, impact of economics and stuff. Well, this really gets into the impact it had on the doctrine of Judaism and then the church, mm-hmm. and then it gets on into the secular world, how mm-hmm. that sort of dovetailed over to different phases throughout uh, modern history mm-hmm. of the banking system and led to where we are. Mm-hmm. And what you'll find out is there's nothing new under the sun, but it certainly is fascinating learning about how what we see in our generation has happened in the past and how it played out. And uh, you'll find Mr. Cashel to be a, not only a very interesting guest on our show, but really has a captivative writing style. It's very mm-hmm. fair, even-handed, very enlightened. Uh, Christians who read it like will in a, in, we'll see. Like in a good sense, not like... In a good sense. You know, not like he's like Dr. John D. Or well, anything. he talks about people from different, you know, facets of God's family and speaks uh, very reasonable, uh, still pointing out some some issues mm-hmm. and things that were there, but also uh, some of the advancements of what they've done. Yeah. Um, but uh, also Christians will find a mindset in here that they can relate to, mm-hmm. the perspective, uh, a Christian worldview perspective to be able to interpret the data and the significance of what happened. So hmm. I really recommend Interesting. it. Uh, I think we need to go on to the interview. So with no further ado, here's Mr. Jack Cashel the author of Popes and Bankers, and we're talking again about the legacy of banking and usury on world history, and we'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. Welcome to the Future Quake show. I'm Dr. Future. And I, of course, am Tom, not a pope or a banker. I don't have a lot of money either. Bionic. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, that was another time-lengthy middle name there yeah, for you this yeah. week. Uh, we have a, another fantastic new guest with us this week on the Future mm-hmm. Quake Show. We have Mr. Jack Cashel, uh, who's the author of numerous books, uh, and including the current book out with the captivating title of Popes and Bankers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're talking this week about the legacy of banking and usury on world history. Mm, and Mr. Fascinating. Yes, that's right. And uh, just just the right thing for our Futurian listeners. Mr. Cashel, it is a pleasure to have you as a guest on the Future Quake radio show. Hey, gentlemen, thanks for having me on. And before your audience runs away quickly, uh, let me reassure you that this subject is actually very funny and, and sometimes engaging and 
uh, entirely relevant. So it's uh, not, you know, because sometimes like economic issues scare people because they're presented in such, you know, um, roundabout ways and so yeah. with so much, you know, uh, uh, dense language that it, you know, it's intimidating. But what I tried to do in the book is to make it um, just like show you what it is. It's just part of our everyday life. Always has been. Well, if it's funny and engaging, they uh, they probably run away already because they yeah. certainly don't like funny and engaging on our show. It's a, it's a whole new concept. We really like dour and dry with yeah. where we can get our hands on it. Oh, good. Well, that's, yeah, someone's got to do that. Yeah, we we talk about derivatives and CDSs and all this other kind of yeah. stuff on here. So this this will be a real treat for our listeners to get a break from us talking about uh, some of these economic issues. Uh, I, I must say, I have found your book, which I have really poured into. I, as an engineer by training, I read like an engineer extremely slowly. But, but through this time, I found your book very enlightening, informative, but also really thought-provoking. And I really enjoy your fascinating style of writing. Now, I know you're an old hand at this. And you've got a number of very popular books out there. But I want to tell our listeners that this is a book that you will actually enjoy reading as well as finding it informative and uh, I just really recommend it. It's a good one to have on your nightstand uh, to take with you uh, to read through. Yeah, the chapters are very brief. Uh, you could take them with you when you pick up the kids at soccer practice or things like that. And you'll walk away with something that you didn't know about. Uh, to begin our discussion, uh, could you define what this critical term is that we're going to talk about? It's out of the Bible called usury. And why, Jews yeah. and, and why Jews and Christians are unique amongst the world religions in terms of viewing it as a sinful uh, type thing. Yeah, you know, because like 1,500 years ago, all the ancient cultures practiced usury, and that was the lending of money at interest. That's all it means. You lend a guy 100 bucks, and then you say, okay, uh, you can have hundred dollars but six months from now, I want $105 back. That's usury. Now, all the ancient cultures did it. They didn't think anything about it. And then um, in Exodus, Moses comes down from the mountain with a prohibition against it. And the reason is this, is that in the tribal culture, uh, like, the, uh, the, like the culture of the Israelites circa 1200 uh, B.C., uh, the notion that there was a social justice element running through lending money. Let's say, for instance, that your brother-in-law comes to you and asks for a 1000 bucks, and you say, yeah, here's $1,000, but six months from now I want $1,100 back. And he says, you know, my little girl is sick. She needs an operation. That's your niece. And you say, hey, I don't care. You know, I'm giving you the money. I want 1100 back. Well, your brother-in-law would think you were CAD. Your sister would never talk to you again. And uh, you would have done made a, a totally usurious transaction. That's exactly the kind of thing that, that Moses was railing against. Because in, in a world where everyone's your friend and neighbor, to, to lend money... Uh, you know, in times of need like that, and expect something in return, is was uh, considered a violation of the, the laws of justice. And but the uh, the Jews had one exception, and that is you can not lend an interest except unto a stranger. Now, you know, for 1,200 years that was not a big deal because everyone else was lending an interest. Then when uh, Jesus comes along and and then Paul takes Jesus' word and, and spreads it throughout the world, suddenly there are no more strangers. We are all members of the same great human tribe. So now to lend money and interest to anyone, you know, uh, like thinking it's based on the notion that it's lending money to someone in need who's, right. you know, who's, who needs it for some good cause or another, 
become sinful everywhere and among all people, among all Christendom, anyhow. Jews are the only exception now. They're the only people who are lending money and interest in Christendom. So they serve a kind of a useful function. It's just that it's a very, very tense relationship uh, because of that. And over time, uh, you know, uh, Christians, as it became more clear that uh, the lending of money and interest was being done more for the sake of advancing commerce than for, you know, helping your brother-in-law right. and your niece, uh, the Christians began to soften their uh, restrictions. But for the first, you know, several thousand years of Christian culture, the takeaway message is this, is that for the only time in history, uh, starting with the ancient Israelites and moving through to Christendom, the only culture in the world where it was God-centered, morally based, and every individual was considered to be his own moral agent uh, in every single transaction he did. So in other words, you didn't need lots of rules and regulations because the rules and regulations were coming from within the individual. And that was what allowed our culture to create and sustain the greatest economy the world has ever known. You talk to a thousand economists mm -hmm. today, a thousand economists aren't even going to mention that to you. You know, and your book is such a tremendous book to understand the unfolding narrative of history of how we got to this end point of this incredible economy that leads the world, but it was based upon a difference between these two great monotheistic religions in Judaism and Christianity, the tension between them, and then the tension within Christendom itself, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Yeah. Through all this, it somehow has worked itself out, and it probably may have new dimensions in, in the future. But but one thing I suspect, and I, I can't read God's mind in all respects other than what he sh shines on us, but that as far as between fellow uh, Hebrews uh, at the time, you know, as they're coming up on uh, the, the Mount Sinai and shortly thereafter that, they were basically pilgrims. And e even their observances of uh, uh, Passover and things like this, they were always supposed to be clothed as if they need to go run at a moment's notice and head out for the yeah. wilderness. And they're always just right. sort of carrying what was on their back. And so that was a mentality that it was them against the world. So basically, yeah. I assume when they were uh, heading to the promised land from Egypt, there probably was a lot of sharing that had to go on anyway between families with whatever they could yeah. get on the donkey or the cart or whatever and get out of Egypt. And so there was this thing where, where it was really their own survival between themselves against everyone else. And I could see that that yeah. would really poison the water if they start charging interest on sharing these kind of things back and forth between each other. Of course, it's interesting. The early, right, in the early church, in you know, Acts, it just says they just shared everything. They, a lot of the church people came up, sold their stuff, and they just shared it. Period. Right, and they were very communal in that regard, and and they were uh, thus they 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 saw, you know, the lending of money and interest among themselves as, as pretty hateful. And uh, you know, and uh, you're right though about uh, Jews having, you know, their their moral and religious precepts set them apart from all other ancient people. And, and so there was anti-Semitism before there was Christianity. Mm -hmm. I mean, once, the, once Jews started spreading around the Mediterranean, it wasn't based on usury. It would be based on other things, like you know, Jews having stricter dietary laws or their uh, restraints against intermarriage with other cultures, etc. Because Hellenic culture, Greek culture, in the years uh, leading up to the birth of Christ, was very much... Uh, inclusive and multicultural in the sense that we use those words today. And they looked askance at people who weren't just like they were, you know? Mm -hmm. 
and, and, and as you mentioned in your book, and I suspect too, in these very early primitive days, most borrowing was done between family members or between very close individuals in a, in a group where it was a very personal thing. And they probably didn't yeah. see the kind of high-level business lending and investment for construction, maybe until they were taken over by Babylon. Uh, and they uh, yeah. you know, saw this kind of system set up when they were in the exile and uh, you know saw what it could do. You know, there's a term you use in your book early, and then you go back to it later. Uh, is a word that our listeners will be familiar with, but very few people in society and even in the church understand its true meaning, but it's important to the case of your book, and that is the term prodigal. Can you explain what the yeah, real, it, real meaning of what prodigal is and how it has affected our economy even today? That's a good observation. Prodigal is the, is the other key word. If usurer is one key word, then prodigal is the other. Uh, you know, Aristotle defined prodigal uh, 2,300 years ago, just as we define it today, and that is someone, and I'm, I'm uh, summarizing, but this is very close to what he said, you know, someone who borrows recklessly and spends shamelessly with little regard for the person he borrowed the money from and without any real intent to pay it back. Uh, now, for the first 1,950 years of Christendom, to be a prodigal was to be a sinner. Right. So, for instance, when... Dante describes the inferno, uh, you know, that is the nine descending circles of hell, and this is in 1300 A.D. Uh, in the seventh circle are uh, usurers, which we call today predatory lenders, that is, people who, you know, lend maliciously and, and uh, vindictively. Uh, but in the fourth circle, seventh is worse, but fourth isn't good, in the fourth circle are prodigals, that is, mm-hmm. the people who borrow uh, recklessly and spend shamelessly. And uh, they were sinners. Now, about 50 years ago, actually probably more like 20 or 30 years ago, prodigals ceased to be sinners in the eyes of the public, certainly in the eyes of the media, and they became instead victims. Uh, and they were no longer responsible for their own behavior. If there was any one cultural shift that brought on the uh, subprime crisis and the consequent, you know, uh, crisis in the money system, uh, that was it. it. This crisis was being fueled at the bottom of the pipeline, not at the top. The people at the top were behaving as they always did, you know, mm-hmm. greedily and everything else, you know. That's mm-hmm. what Wall Street's about. That's what we expect from them. Uh, but what Wall Street, where they really failed, where the people on Wall Street really failed, was they failed to see what had happened to the culture. They failed to see that the people making home loans were no longer, you know, mom and pop and sis and bud, but, uh, you know, Sally and whoever happened to be living at the house that week, you know, or, you know, mm-hmm. the, the family had broken down. And you know, these people were a broken refrigerator away from defaulting. And yet the government was not only encouraging them to make, to take out home loans, it was coercing the lending industry into giving them home loans mm-hmm. against all good sense. And making that spending patriotic. In other words, the more yeah, exactly. spending you did, that was more jobs, it was better for our economy, right. get out there and spend. That's why right. we that's how we have this right. tax free. Yeah, regardless holidays. of whether you can pay it back or not. Yeah. Uh huh. And now we're doing it through these home buyer credits, political things, so then it actually it doesn't really help people get in the home, it just ups the price of a home. They adjust the price until yeah, for everyone else, right. So so that's really the what you're doing is that's exactly right, guys. What you're doing is 
the more people you force into the marketplace, you're, you're forcing up the home prices. And it's right. mm-hmm. particularly visible in places like Southern California, where home prices had become uh, unaffordable for mm-hmm, all but yeah. the extremely affluent. And yet, to keep the system going, they were putting whoever mm-hmm. in a home for whatever reason. And helping the real estate market, too, and realtors, because there's more turnover, more sales, mm-hmm. not necessarily for the person. Sure. But what what it sounds like to me, though, is that for, for most of us, if we want to know who's the real culprit and all this hijinks going on in our in our financial system, we need to go look in a mirror uh, because yeah. it is an indicative thing of the fall. It's like, it's like somebody blaming the casino for having lost their shirt. Uh, That's right. If Interesting they, analogy. If they never walked into the casino, they would have been absolutely fine, or, or the backroom poker game, or, or whatever it is. It's the victim mentality you're talking about. Uh, when these groups may uh, try to cultivate and feed on our shortcomings to be able to take action on it, but ultimately it's decisions that, that we make. You know, it, this whole concept of prodigal, I think people need to mull over it a little bit more because this fact of living beyond your excess and means, why would it be considered sinful? Well, obviously you're living beyond the means that God intends for you to live at this particular point in time or mm-hmm. ever. Uh, so, so therefore it's almost like an act of unbelief that you feel like God has not adequately provided for you in a matter of what you deserve. Therefore, you're going to take other matters in your own hands to shortcut that. And, and I would, I'm, not, I'm surprised that the environmental community has not captured that word to use uh, about uses of resources on earth because it really is a sustainability issue. They probably believe most of us in the West are prodigal in our use of natural resources. Right, they probably do, but they, that the word prodigal implies a moral system where each individual is morally responsible for his behavior in a God-centered universe, and uh, yeah. they don't believe in God. I mean, that's basically the bottom line for yeah. I mean, serious yeah. environmentalists. Or unless you're talking about goddess, uh, yeah. then they might consider it. Yeah, right, or uh, Gaia. Yeah, or Gaia, that's right. <laughs> Earth goddess. Yeah. Uh, but but it's, it's interesting you pointed that, that, that in Dante's Inferno, uh, prodigals and usurers were down in the lowest levels, uh, you know, along with, uh, and I think Virgil talked about this, did he not? That the reason why, yeah, Virgil Dante, was, uh, Dante asked why they were together, like, I think like sodomites were in that same ring of hell. Sodomites, right, sodomites and, um, and the usurers are both in the seventh circle. And, wow. uh, Virgil is guiding Dante. Virgil, uh, is uh, actually, though, a non-Christian is uh, one of those guys in the first circle that is good, wise men who just never saw, uh, never got to know Jesus, you know, like mm-hmm. Aristotle and Socrates and whatnot. And Virgil's guiding him down, and, and Dante says, okay, I get the sodomy part, and that's a sin against nature, but why are the usurers here in a seventh circle? And then uh, Dante, uh, Virgil has to explain it to him again, because it's not obvious. And the reason that uh, Virgil gives is a reason that's based on Aristotle's reasoning, because Aristotle, who had recently been discovered by the Christian world or rediscovered, uh, didn't like usury at all. And he considered it a sin against nature. Basically, he considered it a, unless you make your living by, you know, by, uh, by your hand or by, you know, through the earth or through crafts, he considered it just, uh, you know, against nature. And, and that, and the Christians, uh, that reinforced the Christian notion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why, uh, uh, Aristotle had to do a little explaining because by 1300, you know, it's becoming clear that the lending of money and interest was not being done, you know, to keep your little niece out of the hospital so much as to keep your uh, your 
uh, the merchant ships afloat with spices from the Orient, you know, and there's a difference there. And, and the uh, Christian churches adapted to that once they saw that, uh, that, that difference become uh, more manifest. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, uh, when I first got your book, started looking at it, it was well before I knew that you'd be able to come on our show and talk about it. And I really got hung up on these early chapters on usury and even started thinking about how it could impact my personal life and others. And the fact that a lot of our long-term investments are very conservative in our household, uh, a lot of them are right. in, tre- in treasury bonds, which I guess yeah. some could argue that you're charging the federal government usury uh, for the use of money. And I guess there's different ways to look at it. They need operating capital that they don't have to do things and, and, and this and that. But then I started thinking about do, do we need to have a different view in our in, – I'll, I'll speak for Christian society. Christian society, uh, if, if, if these statements really hold water – and that the more noble way is to take money and put it to work, either through the land or through something with your hands, manufacture. Maybe some of our investment. We, we talk on the show a lot about the the uh, call in uh, Revelation 18 to get out of Babylon and to not be yeah. part of her or partake in her sins. That maybe we need to think about some more creative investment and retirement mm-hmm. techniques within the Christian world and in other civic groups and you know people of faith. Uh, to, to be able to do something that actually has more redeeming activity, uh, I certainly wouldn't have any problem or, or any heartburn having a scenario in which you could build and sustain wealth that didn't use the banks on Wall Street. And I'm not saying they're yeah, inherently, I think inherently right. evil, I, but uh, I'm not saying they're inherently evil, but it would certainly be nice not to have, to have to foster their lifestyle and to pour it back well, you know, into my the, local the mid- community. That's right. Uh, the medieval church... Uh, did not have a problem with uh, what we call investment, uh, you know, uh, venture capitalist. In other words, if you put your money into a business and you risk losing it, if the business did not succeed, that was okay. Right. What they objected to was if you put your money into a business and the business fails, then you still get your money back, you know, right? Uh, at interest, even though the, the person who's using it has, has lost everything. That was where the objection lies. You sound like a bank with uh, mortgage insurance and title insurance. They they, they lend money yeah. out even though they have absolute insurance if you fail or default. you know they, they actually can take back the collateral. They also have other insurance on the mortgage. So they're protected six ways to Sunday, they say, uh, for right. their investors right. as opposed to being at risk. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think your point is well made. I think if, if you have um, money... And, uh, you know, you're a Christian who's made a lot of money. I have a brother-in-law who falls into this category, actually, and, and he's thinking very seriously of that is how, you know, can he put his money, because uh, he's, you know, as a very, very successful entrepreneur, and he wants to invest it in a Christian way, that is, into enterprises that not only uh, do, uh, you know, commercial good, but that have a larger good for society. In fact, so many businesses are, and that's why entrepreneurship is such a, a positive thing is that because what you are doing is you are employing people. You're finding them, you know, good and useful ways to spend their time and to feed their families. So it's, you know, as long as the, the business is, you know, is not uh, negative, uh, like, you know, it's not like, a, you know, like an abortion bill or a strip club or something. Right. Uh, there's a good chance that, that in any business is, um, is, does a moral good, especially if you run it morally and well you know that's right and you can provide for people's families and things we're back at future quake with dr future and tom hopefully not a prodigal but i mean when i look at my bank account anything's possible 
bionic. Were you fascinated by that? The actual definition of prodigal. I had the never. I had never once heard that. Uh, yeah, but that's the real. You look it up, and that's the real word. Most people think prodigal son. They think of well, prodigal means he ran away. He was rebellion. Uh huh. It just meant he spent a lot of money. That's all. Yeah, that spent a lot meant. of money unwisely. Yeah. That was. I, I tell you. I mean, there were many, many. Excuse me. <clears throat> many points that I was fascinated by yeah. here in this in this first segment, but that was definitely definitely yeah. one of the high points. You know. And and throughout the history of the church. As opposed to today, when you actually see in church the promotion of excessive lifestyles, they don't say it that way, but you know, you, you deserve this. You yeah. deserve this. You're, you, if you, you hear if you hear your pastor saying you deserve this, there's something deep well, wrong at a very deep deep level. I what think. about in the self help books that we find in our Christian bookstores? I don't know. I don't. You read know, them. you need to, <laughs> you need to take care of yourself. You need to treat yourself. You need to do you know whatever. Well, I'll tell you what from from dealing. You know, I've had a multitude of jobs, and one of them was, you know, a sales manager. And uh, one of the things that I would, you know, when I was selling stuff, telling other people how to sell stuff is, you know, one of the common things they would they would tell you is you can tell the person if they're on the fence, you go, look, I mean, you've worked hard for what you've done, and you deserve this. Mm-hmm. And that was like the final thing, appealing to their pride Push and self. Right. Yeah, so if you see, I, I mean, like I said, I don't read self-help books. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm happy with my problems, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you hear people saying that, I think that's a cause for a huge red flag, uh, especially because there's in I mean, the church. Well, yeah, it's it's in in many ways I think antithetical to mm-hmm. the Christian message. You look how uh, well compared to a, a whole world view, uh, how uh, luxurious our churches are and opulent. Mm-hmm. They are a million with the, five for a door. With, yeah. yeah, and the chandeliers and all the other kind of yeah. stuff that we have in these fancy facilities. And what kind of message does that send to us? When, when you're with other people in your Sunday school class or group at church and everybody's bought the latest, you know, whatever, new thing, yeah. whether it's cars or TVs iPod, or whatever. IPad. Yeah, Everybody's collecting all this stuff, trying to figure out how to pay for it. I wouldn't be surprised if you have just as many bankruptcies in church as you do people outside the church. Sure. Well, there's a there's a point that we make about every fifth show in that the, the visible church is not the same as the invisible church. Right. And uh, Jesus may not be coming back for both of them. Well, I would hope that all of us who need I to work on this issue. I hope that he gets everybody. Yeah, I hope all of us who work on this can can actually redeem the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got 30 seconds. Can you mention the show again? We'll give it a bigger plug next yes. tomorrow. But okay. Uh, well, we are doing the Future Quake call-in show. Um, it's uh, if you go to talkshoe.com, hosted graciously by them, and call. Uh, just go to look for the Mighty Tom Community Call on Tuesday, uh, June. I guess it's 29th, right? Okay. Tuesday, June 29th um, at 6:30. Okay. We'll tell more about it tomorrow. Okay. Uh, Merv, would you come in and tell our listeners how to contact us at Future Quake? Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast.
Okay, we really have to go. Okay, bye. Come back for the next segment tomorrow. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I am Tom in full promotion mode of the uh, Future Quake call-in show, June 29th at 6.30 p.m., Bionic. You've been doing that all this week, but what we do need to promote this week is our guest our this week. Our actual guest, yeah. All right, well, if you want to actually talk about the guest. Wonderful man, Mr. Jack Cashel, who is the author of a fascinating book called Popes and Bankers. It's a book I highly recommend, and we're talking this week about the legacy of banking and usury on world history. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a great segment last uh, day, and we we continue today. Um, did you know that usury or the the idea of lending money and charging interest was such a big deal in the church? I was history? fascinated to find out that uh, the seventh level of hell was populated with sodomites and and people who yeah. practiced usury. That's right. People who did unnatural things against nature is what it was. Uh, yeah, I know. Yeah, usurers were considered pretty pretty low people. Yeah. Uh, because the, the argument goes is that they were people who did not, um, they did not make money in meaningful natural ways, mm-hmm. like by working the ground, making mm-hmm. crafts, selling, adding value, selling derivatives. I don't think that counts. I think yeah. that's more in the usury thing. Yeah, you might be right. Well, you're not really adding any product. You're just yeah. an agent passing on something and putting your tax on it, basically. Yeah. So uh, I, I thought it was just fascinating, just like the prodigal concept we talked about yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, things that we hear and we never really study what they are. Mm-hmm. And they've had a big history uh, in the impact of our church. So uh, we're going to go on to our next installment with Jack Cashel. And then we'll be back to talk about it further here at Future Quake. And there's ways to manage risk, too, even within that. I mean, you can diversify your investments in in things that go up when other things go down. Uh, you can find a diversity of kind of things, like e- even in very austere environments. I mean, you can sell groceries and things like that. Everybody's going to have to eat, you know, or water and things like that. Right. So so I, I think it would be good for the Christian community. And, and, and I'm skipping ahead here a little bit, but while we're on this topic... Uh, there was something that evolved uh, within the church, something that called Piety Mountains, and I was not familiar yeah. with that. And it was part of this evolving struggle within the church to try to see, what, what, was there any justification for usury, like in an investment scenario and things like this. And, and, and this idea popped up. Can you explain what it was and how it worked? Yeah, they're, uh, they're basically the translation is right, Piety Mountains, uh, Pietis Montis, uh and they were done as they were Christian alternatives to pawn shops. Uh, they were troubled. You know, pawn shops have existed from whenever. I mean, going all the way back. And, you know, and people would bring their their uh, 15th century equivalent of chainsaws and bowling balls <laughs> into, the, right. into the pawn shop. And, and they would get the, they would put it up as the collateral and they would be given a loan that they'd have to pay back with interest. And then if they did, they'd get their, uh, their property back. And uh, the... Uh, various Christian orders amongst them began to see that, you know, that they saw the value in this for poor people, but they didn't. They didn't like the idea of that these people being charged usurious rates of interest on their loans. Uh, so they began to create uh, Christian-based pawn shops. However, what they soon saw 
is that even Christian-based porn shops have to charge some interest to pay the overhead, you sure. know, to keep the doors open and the lights on, and to uh, compensate for those. Well, in a porn shop, you're getting uh, the, the collateral, so it, there's not that much risk involved, but to, to, there's a transaction cost that goes into every business, and so they began to charge very modest rates of interest, uh, and uh, there were other religious orders that took them to task, so this isn't right. Meanwhile, uh, the Jews who had something of a monopoly on this until, uh, you know, the Christian orders began to do it weren't happy about it either because they had wives and families to feed, you know, that, that monks didn't have to. So, uh, but it finally went to the Pope and the Pope said, uh, yes, this is okay. This, this is fair. This makes sense. This does not violate, you know, the rules of God and man. And, and that was a turning point in, in Christian history. Mm-hmm. Uh, one advantage they would have, they had to keep up with overhead, and there might be an occasional default or investment that didn't go right, right. or what they took collateral. But they did not have a corporate structure where they had to increase their profits every quarter. Uh, they didn't have these aggressive standards that they had to keep increasing it or heads would roll. Uh, they didn't have to pay for Learjets. And, you know, think, think of the head of Tycho, you know, he'd have that big birthday celebration with the Greek goddesses there and the $20,000, yeah. uh, you know, uh, uh, what was it, the, the bathtub uh, shower curtain, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so, so you could be very, very competitive. Do, do you think we could ever reestablish something akin to these Piety Mountains as a, as a yeah, uh, so response? Yeah, I'll tell you what, a fellow, in fact, I met this guy. He won a Nobel Peace Prize. He was one of the last people who wanted to deserve it <laughs> His name is Muhammad Yunus. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but yes. mm-hmm. uh, what he did was brilliant. Uh, he was a um, he's a Bangladeshi. He was a very successful economist and banker in Bangladesh, and the poverty around him was appalling. And um, he uh, saw that, and you know, he's, but he saw that these people were decent, sincere people, and he thought if you could give them small loans, you know, in modest rates of interest on a non-profit basis. Uh, Actually, it's for-profit. I, I take that back. His business is, he was the first entrepreneur, a for-profit entrepreneur, to uh, win a Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, and he was right. I mean, he would give small loans to deserving people, to like micro-loans, mm-hmm. for them to start businesses. And, um, you know, they did it very carefully, very systematically, uh, very, um, uh, and, you know, they kept their overhead way down so the, the interest wasn't at all intimidating. And uh, they ended up getting paid back 98% of the time. It's been a huge success in the in places like India, Bangladesh, where you know there's still a strong sense of honor among the poor, mm-hmm. uh, and that's that's a critical part of the of the equation. They've tried it in the United States with less success. I'm not. It's not to say it's failed, but it's you know it's uh, the the nature of, of prosperity here is such that it uh, you know if if you are chronically poor, there's probably a reason for it. Right. Beyond, you know, the circumstances of your life, you know. Yeah, they say our land is unique that even the poor people are fat. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you what, the poor people. I just drove across the country. I stopped at every McDonald's between Missouri and New York. And our poor, not poor people, our working class people are, are humongous. And that's yeah. another issue, but right. uh, especially the women. What's going on, ladies? Right. <laughs> Uh, I, I just can't picture you, McDonald's. I know you're a very prestigious gentleman with a lot of incredible credentials. And well, he's trying to. I'm surprised you've not bumped a, not into me prodigal. there. He's I know to he's, be a he's not trying to be funny wisely. Well, I know I'm. I'm a fan of that dollar <laughs> menu. I'm. I'm glad to hope I bump I, into you fan. there. 
I think I like their clean bathrooms. They have the best bathrooms in America. You know, you can depend on them. So. Yeah, well, you know that you're going to go in there and it's not going to be a mess. That's right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Even at even at three in the plus, morning. Plus, they have a light. They have light lemonade at their uh, fountains. <laughs> I didn't know no. that. That's that's bad stuff though. All the aspartame in there is terrible. You don't, oh, you don't you, want to drink that. You, and the high fructose corn. You syrup. got him on the aspartame kick yeah. here. Uh, <laughs> you know, I I would certainly foresee that we have such a large group of people of faith in our country that we need some entrepreneurs to step forward, much like Dwight Moody was in using Christian capital to do some wonderful things. You know, a hundred plus years ago, to to do these sure. kind of things. I mean, we we could offer a healthcare system. Uh, that can yeah. have oversight by fellow Christian people, including accountability, you know, accountability in our finances, accountability in our general health and our upkeep and well-being. We have this within our grasp if we just we're not overcome with apathy. Uh, you know, well, you know, in fact, our health system started. Uh, I mean, so many of the hospitals are Christian. You know, that's yeah. right. That's I exactly. mean, uh, uh, but um, the intrusion of the government is such that it makes it very big. You know, they're they've almost driven out the. Uh, uh, private health care providers. Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, because it's, you, know, you either participate in the, in the government largesse or you get left behind. Same thing with schooling. You know, it started out as, you know, public schools started out as Christian schools. Right. And we may have to do some of these things underground or off the table to be able to see them accomplished. Yeah. Uh, Jesus, uh, a story he told in Scripture um, caused a lot of consternation, whether he intended it to be this way or such. Uh, in, in years later for the church uh, that happened to have a, a usury component as sort of a, a, an aside in it. Can you explain why one of his parables caused so many problems for the church coming to terms with this? Well, certainly on the question of um, of, uh, of usury, it, it caused some some consternation. And this is the story, and uh, when I had to think back, uh, basically, the, I think it says that it's the parable of the talents and the pounds, is that what it's called? That's uh, right. Mm-hmm. But the, um, and in the story, it, it's kind of interesting, because this rich landowner goes away, and he, he leaves uh, three of his um, of his uh, servants with X amount of dollars to invest. And um, he goes away to a far country, and they don't like him there, and he comes back, and uh, when he comes back, he finds that uh, two of them have lent their money and interest and and uh, returned more than he gave them. Uh, but the third guy chose not to because he was afraid that the by doing something adventurous like that, that the master would uh, would criticize him. And uh, and he is the, he is the bad, not you know he's the negative uh, model in the parable. Now, it's not to say that Jesus is advocating usury here, but certainly uh, he was aware that that system existed then and uh but the larger point is isn't really about the lending of money it's about using the uh of taking advantage of the gifts that god gives you and spreading those gifts around Mm -hmm. the fact though that jesus used uh, usury as a metaphor uh caused a lot of problems for the people who are very keen on usury bans i mean in fact that you know the ban on usury never reached the level of of uh you know, like a ban on murder or a ban on, you know, right. theft. It was always a little more controversial than that. Uh, and Jesus had simply nothing to say about it, which made it even more difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Old Testament is is laced with prohibitions against history, time after time after time after time, except uh, in Deuteronomy, where, and this is the critical one, where uh, Jews were not allowed to lend the usury. You know, they said this in, 
And they said this in Exodus. They said it in uh, the Psalms. They said it in Isaiah. They said it in Nehemiah. But in Deuteronomy, it says, except unto a stranger. And that, those four words would uh, forever, not forever, but for a long time, uh, you know, create a wedge between Jews and Christians, especially in the creation of an economic order. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because yeah. once uh, Paul took Jesus' message throughout the world, there were no strangers anymore. Right. You know, we're all part of the same family. And, and then you have this, this Hippocratic position of people in the church where they would hiss and revile the Jews for doing this. But when hard times came, push came to shove, or even if they were just acting in a prodigal manner, they'd go under the cover of night and go see their local mm-hmm. uh, Jew usurer and take use of his services, mm-hmm. cursing him all the time. And that is the, the whole uh, thrust of the uh, of the play, and it's a brilliant play. And, and you can all learn an awful lot about Christian civilization, most of the good, uh, by reading uh, The Merchant of Venice, uh, mm-hmm. William Shakespeare's classic play about the usurer Shylock. He's not the merchant of Venice, however. The merchant is Antonio, uh, the, the, the person who uses Shylock, just like you say, even though he reviles Shylock, he ends up uh, going to Shylock uh, because he needs uh, to, to some instant cash so he can lend it to his friend Bassanio, who's wooing fair Portia. And when Antonio's ships don't come back, mm-hmm. uh, as they were supposed to, right. uh, Antonio is in debt uh, to Shylock for a pound of his flesh. What's interesting about this, there are several things, though, and, and that, that speak well of Christian commerce circa 1600. One is that Antonio, uh, even though paying his debt meant uh, surrendering his life, was entirely willing to do it. He was not a prodigal. Mm-hmm. He realized that he had made his uh, debt, he had given his word, and he was prepared to go through with it to the end. And, and he did not have selfish uh, motives. They were on behalf of somebody else, correct? They were on behalf of someone else. Shylock... Even though he was a Jew, and we, you know, we, when we think about Jews and Christendom, we think about these outcasts and they're reviled, etc. Well, yes and no. Shylock fully depended on the rule of law, uh, and that's critical to any commercial civilization. Right. And the rule of law derived out of Judeo-Christian culture, where the individual is equal under the law. Even uh, a reviled uh, usurer had rights under the law, and he expected justice under the law. Mm-hmm. And he got it. He got a little more justice than he wanted. But another factor that's, that's interesting in that play is this, is that, you know, as much tension there was between Jews and Christians, when uh, uh, Shylock's daughter, Jessica, uh, runs off and marries Lorenzo, the friend of uh, Antonio's, uh, who's a Christian, there's no eyebrows raised. Like, mm-hmm. this is an interracial marriage. It's not. We're all, we're all in the same family, you know, right. with the messages here. Right. And at the end of the play, now, uh, modern audiences have a problem with this because part of Shylock's punishment, uh, as what uh, he sees, what contemporary audiences see as his punishment, was that he was forced to convert to Christianity if he wanted to keep his estate, but um, if he wanted to keep his life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at that time, the notion that he was being, they thought of it as a gift, that he was being allowed to become Christian, mm-hmm. that they were sharing this with him, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's... Unless you understand it from that perspective, uh, you miss uh, a lot of the beauty and generosity uh, of uh, Merchant of Venice. And right. it really pivots on the one speech that, uh, uh, that is given, where it says the quality of mercy is not strained. Uh, the Old Testament Shylock wants justice, right. but the judge comes in 
uh, this young judge that's kind of involved with, and says, no, it's not just about justice, it's about justice and mercy, you know? Mm-hmm. So the, in, in, in the rule of law, the only person who can be merciful isn't the judge, because he's got to stick to the law, is Shylock. And the judge asks him, Shylock, be merciful. They're willing to pay you twice what they borrowed from you if you spare this man's life. But Shylock insists on justice. I want my justice. I want my bond. Mm-hmm. And the result is, you know, Shylock's own undoing. But right. if anyone who wants to understand Christian commerce uh, circa 400 years ago, it's it's a great place to start. I'd recommend mm. uh, the Al Pacino movie, the DVD of that, which is mm-hmm. uh, just really pretty stunning. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you you said you really have to understand, you know, you need to know that information to understand that culture and look backwards. And certainly we know when you go back and look in biblical times, it certainly makes a lot of the Bible passages much more understandable when you understand the yeah. culture and the values they had at that time. Uh, this whole thing of contorting a parable in sort of a, a, a sort yeah. of an aside term uh, to, to be distorted and become some central focus is something we've been dealing with on our show a lot. There's a, there's another parable Jesus told uh, about some financial dealings of a master and his servants to watch the talents, and he makes an offhand comment to to occupy here until I come back, and that has now grown into a religious belief system called dominionism uh, that believes yeah. that we're supposed to occupy all of the power centers of the world and take over yeah. forcibly, forcibly occupy them. And many of our most prominent American church leaders have now recently bought into this. Often offhand comment in a parable, not a direct command from Christ, but just, just part of the storyline uh, into a thing. So I'm not surprised that this has happened to the church before, that they've made a mountain out of a molehill, uh, you know, of something with this. However, on the... Right, and that's why it's, excuse I've me. said that's why it's important to look at the whole of Jesus' life and his teachings rather than try to, to parse a given word or a given sentence or even a given parable. But here's some things we know about Jesus, is that he was a small businessman, you know? His father was an entrepreneur, so was he. He ran a small business, and uh, so there's nothing, uh, and this is where the the modern leftist, uh, uh, liberation theologists especially, run with Christianity and try to make it something it's not, and that is a socialist system. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because there's nothing in the Bible, New Testament or Old, nothing in the teachings of the church doctors, nothing in the teachings of the great theologians, it says uh, anything other than uh, charity is the uh, is the province of the individual, the church, uh, and the community. Pro- charity. If if Jesus had said, "Okay, here's what I want you to do. Forget about giving yourself. I'm going to turn it over to Pontius Pilate and have him extract money uh, from all of you and then distribute it as he sees fit." That's that's not part. I'm you know I'm. There's people who know their Gospels better than I do, but I think you can read that up and down, and you're not going to see that anywhere, you know? Right. Um, right. That's what we're doing today. That's what we're saying today is that, yeah, we're compassionate because uh, the government is taking our money from us by force and then redistributing as the government sees fit. That has nothing, nothing to do with Christian charity, you know? Right. That's, that's And it tyranny. competes with Christian charity, and, and it drives that of the marketplace almost. Well, and we let it compete because the church pulls back and creates a vacuum of need in society yeah. that the government fills that vacuum. Uh, right. The, there there was some passages that were really touching in your book, uh, talking about some of the early church fathers and some things that they did to explain the purposes of lending and giving. And, and one particular yeah. passage related it to belief or faith. Can you explain how credit 
and giving relate to a belief in God? Yeah, and that's this is often missed, and that is the question is, why do you give to the poor? And, you know, we think, and, and that's why it's been, I think, distorted today. We give to the poor because it's our right, it's our, the role to redistribute wealth, you know. No, that's not why people gave to the poor. People gave to the poor as a way of investing in their own salvation. That it was a way of storing up, you know, was doing a good deed was there at the same time. They are putting an investment into their, their uh, eternal, uh, you know, um, bliss. You know, they, they're making that investment. Every time you lend to the poor, you are giving, in a sense, directly to God. So it's not seen as like you have this compulsion mm-hmm. to make sure everyone has the same amount, because that's never been the case and never will. You know, the poor will always be with us. But you give to the poor as a way of your storing up uh, uh, points, in a sense, for your eternal reward. And, and they're very specific about that. Right. Jesus says, if you gave it to the least of these, you gave unto me. And we're supposed to see yeah, right. the eyes of Jesus. And, and and basically, when you mentioned, I believe it was Augustine, but some of the other church fathers said, basically, you're giving a loan to God. Uh, right. And, of course, you know, he is the source of all things that he gives to us anyway. It's all his anyway, particularly those who he redeemed. Uh, he bought all of us and all of our assets. We manage it for him uh, at his pleasure. But it says we loan it back to him. And so it would, after he's redeemed us and paid such a great price, it does seem awkward that we would charge interest to him after he did yeah, all exactly. that stuff Especially for us. Been, yeah, and that's why you would. That's why lending money to the people in need at interest was and still is, uh, you know, sinful. You know, uh-huh. I and mean, that's not the way mercy is supposed to exist. And at the same time, the notion that, just as you say, is is that. Uh, you know, by giving to uh, the least, you're giving to God. When the government coerces you to give, that whole uh, transactional uh, grace is lost. You know, it's it's graceless. It's uh, it's without um, a larger purpose. You know, mm-hmm. it's just being done coercively, and it's being done uh, for reasons of purely purely materialistic that have nothing to do with. The betterment of anyone's soul uh, in, in advancing the kingdom. And I, personally, I think too many Christian churches of all stripes have gotten to the point now where they think that their job is to uh, redistribute the wealth. You know. Well, Jesus was, was uh, approached. He was approached with an ideal opportunity for that when the the gentleman came to him and said, uh, "You tell my brother to split this this land, this inheritance with me." And share it. It yes. was a classic redistributive wealth. And Jesus said, nope. "What? What is that to me? What have I with that?" Yeah, uh, right. I think he made it very clearly that that was not the reason why he was called. Now, you know, we, we're supposed to be stirred out of compassion, like he was when he saw the poor, and he did things right. that was apparent that he hadn't even planned to do, because he saw the poor and had compassion on them. He went about healing or right. feeding them. And, you know, when when he said the uh, apostles said, well, look, these people are hungry here. And he said, feed them. You know, yeah. that's what you need to be about, feeding them. Uh, you know, don't, don't pass the hat on them or charge them for whatever. Just feed them. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom, uh, is, it, is that UH? Tom, UH, Bionic? UH? For, uh, yeah. Yes. Okay. Okay. Oh, Tom promoting in full self-promotion mode about the the uh, Future Quake community call. Go to uh, TalkShoe.com. Yeah. Search Mighty Tom community call. Uh, 
Bionic. And uh, since we forgot to do it on the on the tomorrow's trimmer shows later this week, um, we are having a live call-in show for Future Quake, a first time ever yes. like this. Uh-huh. Um, this is going to be a great experiment or a horrendous disaster. On the 29th of June, right? Yes, whatever. I, I believe that's that Tuesday. 29th at 6:30 p.m. Central Time. Yes. We will probably do some news stories, mm-hmm. things like that, and then have uh, time for our listeners, our Futurians, to actually call in. Mm-hmm. Via TalkShoe. TalkShoe has graciously allowed us to not only record it, but be able to rebroadcast it on WNO. Yeah, they were very nice about that. We even talked to the CEO. So use TalkShoe more mm-hmm. uh, for those purposes. Mm-hmm. Uh, back to our topic at hand here. Um, uh, what did you think about this Piety Mountain idea? Uh, I thought it was very Christians. interesting. I'm still trying to wrap my head around the whole idea of usury for social good being sort of okay. Um I guess I'm going to have to go – I'm going to have to think about that a little bit. But I guess yeah. assuming that is okay, like the Piety Mountain thing is – I think that's a that's an interesting yeah. idea, you know. I just remember that song. They say don't go up Piety Mountain. Oh, I thought – really? See, I thought it was for right. a while it was going to turn out to be like one of the mountains of the Dominionists. Oh, thank goodness. Like no, piety you don't hear mountain. Piety. No. Piety, it, it, it's hard to say you have dominion over piety. You know, it just, yeah. it's just oxymoron. Sort yeah, of. I know. I'm so spiritual. No. I've ascended Piety it's, Mountain. It's like, it's like I'm very proud of my humility. You know, it yeah. just doesn't really go well <laughs> together. Puritan's pride. <laughs> but, but, but as I understand it, uh, when you invest money, okay, in something that could take off and grow, mm-hmm. It, you're, you're not really like a leech sucking off a person, getting them deeper and deeper in debt. You're, you're enabling them to make a strategic investment where then they can get a big windfall from some great thing that they've made or invention or product. Mm-hmm. And then that is shared with you, some of the largesse, some of the extra that they have. Mm-hmm. If they lose it all, you lose it. So it's risk-reward. But, but you're not just like a tick sucking them dry. Like if somebody's barely getting by and they have to have a place to live, it's like, well, since you're hard up, you don't have money. Here it is, but I'm going to charge you extra for it, and I'll be back next week to get it. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, it's not not quite like that. Uh, so anyway, I think that's what uh, you know. Calvin really saw is a real difference. Yeah. Can you clarify before we go here? Um, when people go to talk to you, mm-hmm. uh, and this will be live, right, 6.30 yes. p.m. Central at 20. Mm-hmm. What do they need to look for? Mighty Toms? Yeah, you need to go to TalkShoe.com, and there's two ways to do this, right? One is that you can call in and listen over your phone, and you call 724-444-7444, and then type in uh, your the call ID will be 72353. Uh, that'll yeah. be to call in. What I recommend everybody doing is going there to talkshoe.com, uh, uh, searching for Mighty Tom's community call. Yeah. Uh, it's listed as the Future Quake call-in show. Yeah. And uh, then hit the, the – it'll say live and then hit the live button, and yeah. it'll come bring up a, yeah. um, you know, like a forum, a talk okay. forum. And then you can listen over the internet, and then call in when we once we're done okay. with the news. Okay. Well, well, we'll put these instructions on the front of futurequake.com too. Mm-hmm. But just to let you know about it, Merv, would you come in and tell our listeners how to contact us at Futurequake? Futurequake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. 
comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. We really got to go. Okay. Okay. Come back tomorrow for our last segment with Jack Cashel. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom in full promotion mode of our call-in show, Bionic. And also like a broken record. This has been the well, same middle name, well, generally. Well, well, Actually, most of our futurians would probably rather hear a broken record than us <laughs> most weeks. Uh, you know, uh, last week we had uh, you know, a pastor come talking about people from the intelligence and defense area uh-huh. saying that uh, our government agents were doing ritual magic and opening portals to demonic spirits. And yeah. we thought, what could be more sensational to top that? Uh, and so we thought usury would be a topic that would really be even more pizzazzy. So yeah. that's what we're focusing on this week is is the ethics of usury and charging interest on loans. Mm-hmm. And while that was such a big deal in the church and Judeo-Christian belief for mm-hmm. such a long time, the ramifications of it. Uh, and this subject is the key important matter of a book written by Jack Cashel, a wonderful author, uh, and the author of the book Popes and Bankers. And we're talking this week about the legacy of banking and usury on world history. And um, all I can tell you is get the book because it is a fascinating read. It's one of those kind of things where you should have it on your nightstand. These are very brief chapters. There's a whole lot of chapters you can get, like Mm -hmm. five pages, ten pages. Mm -hmm. And it'll have a segment of world history about some new development in banking, whether it's the Medici's or the Banking Center in Florence, the... uh, Knights Templar that came before it, mm-hmm. how the Catholic Church handled financial issues, mm-hmm. uh, what happened later, the big bubbles that occurred, and um, I learned tons of stuff. I know. It, this book seems like it really affected you. Yeah. Oh, it did, and because it got me to thinking about um, how to use money in a way that is more beneficial for society and still meet personal family objectives and things like that. Mm-hmm. And it's really given me a lot of time sort of laying in bed thinking about what what would be something I can do constructively with this information. Because mm-hmm. the ethics of handling money is a, it, derived from the Bible, from mm-hmm. the teachings and doctors of the Bible, is really the main key of this book. And also talking about, you know, how the pagans looked at stuff, how philosophers and other kind of things. And the whole thing is very educational in mm-hmm. total. And to see where it intersects Christian thinking, where it departs. Uh, but particularly the historical lessons learned and things like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, if there's no further ado, we'll go straight to it. Let's get this, this is our on. This is our last segment with the author Jack Cashel, uh, author of Popes and Bankers, talking about the legacy of banking and usury on world history. And then we'll be back to wrap it up here on Future Quake. You know, these are the kind of things that I really recommend people check out in your book. But another fascinating area is the story of Obs, and it goes through all of history, the rising of the banking systems through the uh, Knights Templar, the uh, Medici family, and then and then the other banking empire, Rothschilds and others. It's it's just an incredibly educational read as well as entertaining. But can you explain a little bit how even two reformers, prominent reformers like Calvin and Luther, differed? in this particular view as well, and what did it shed light on, uh, more about themselves 
by the position. Yeah, well, that, their difference is, uh, is pretty dramatic. They're the, you know, they're, this is, they're roughly contemporaries. I think Luther's a little older. Um, and they're, we're talking 16th century here. They're the, really the first two major Protestant reformers. Um, and when you read their writings on the economy, uh, you know, I don't mean to offend any Lutherans out there, but Calvin comes across very clear-headed and very um, uh, logical and consistent. Luther gets carried away. I mean, he's and his and and his and his um, animus against um, usury uh, converts into a total hatred of Jews. Mm. And he wasn't he wasn't shy about saying that because he identified them so much with that practice. Uh, and I think partly as a result of this, Calvin is the first theologian who who gives his blessing to usury. Uh, he makes a very strong case for it as you know when done uh, morally and not so much, you know, as a social justice issue, but in for commercial transactions. And the net result of that is that you see the Calvinist countries take off economically, uh, particularly uh, the Netherlands. Uh, the Dutch Reformed Church was, uh, you know, was essentially the church of the land and was entirely Calvinist. Scotland, you know, where the Presbyterians were Calvinist. New England, which was probably the purest Calvinist distillation in, in America, you see those cultures take off because they've begun to integrate Calvin's thinking on the economy. And he's very consistent, very logical, and it's, he's hard to argue with when you read, you know, from a contemporary point of view. And, you know, personally, I don't have any, you know, one, I mean, you know, Luther did right. a lot of wonderful things, but uh, on the economy, I, you know, and I'm neither a Lutheran nor a Calvinist, but I, and I had not been that familiar with either one of them on their writings on the economy, but uh, I think I think Calvin wins that battle. You know, I think he's he's the one whose whose writings make the most sense, and they and they uh, prevail in Christendom in general for the next several centuries. Well, if I remember right, basically Calvin said these kind of teachings you have to be very careful to take them into the context of the passages right. and what were the real lessons being taught uh, yeah. by that. And, and, and I and think he says he, if you, yeah. you hold people to an impossible standard, you um, you corrupt the standard. You know, you you make the standard tricky. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah. once and, and as these standards, as the the culture changes, and and the notion of what a loan does changes, then you've got to understand that this isn't what, what Jesus or anyone else really intended. You know, right. And so so if, you're, if you're lending money to buy tulip bulbs for you know on the on the Dutch exchange market, it's not like you're lending money to your brother-in-law's daughter who is uh, needing a an operation for leukemia, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, in the fact, like you say, if you're doing it as an investment, you've got risk. You're going to lose money right. at time. You've still, got to, you've still got to cover your losses by making a little extra on the other deals. And, and also, too, if you're successful at it and you're good, you're going to have a whole lot more money to be able to loan to other people. That's right, and to do good things with, you know, to help other people with, to invest in charities and, to, you know, to uh, be a philanthropist, to become a so what they call a social entrepreneur. But, but what um, they, but what know, right they, now, what, I was going to say right now I'm doing a document. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Guys. No, I was just going to say one thing I think I want to make clear is that the kind of scenario he's describing is he's actually making money back on something that's actually making money for other people. So, in other words, it's right. sharing in the success of what the people yeah. have gotten. They're, he's not taking it to their detriment. Uh, his strategic investment has helped other people prosper better, and then he gets some right. prosperity back, and then he can go share it with somebody else at a critical stage. Right. 
And that's and Calvin understood that very clearly. I, and you know, I had not read him uh, much before, but I was very impressed with his uh, just the clear clarity of the thought uh, on uh, economic issues. Mm-hmm. He was way ahead of his time. Now, I'm, I apologize for interrupting you here. I know we have a little delay here. Uh, okay. can, can, just to give an example of the more common day, and in your book, again, it goes from ancient times right up to today, but in explaining some of the manias that happened, can you explain about John Law and the impact he yeah. had in France? And, and there was a similar incident that happened in England as well, because it looks very, very much like today uh, in what occurred. Well, what, it sure what does. John Law is one of the most amazing characters in history. He's a Scotsman, comes to London, shoot, uh, kills a guy in a duel, right? flees to Holland. He's also very smart, mathematical genius, a great gambler. He amasses a small fortune gambling. He reinvested in his uh, in economic analysis and thought, becomes one of the foremost economists of his day. He goes to France, uh, where he introduces his new economy. This is roughly 1720. They make him the equivalent of the head of the Federal Reserve, the Secretary of Treasury, and the uh, chairman of the Goldman Sachs, <laughs> I mean, all oh. in one. And they essentially turn over the entire French economy to John Law, a Scotsman who actually killed the guy 30 years earlier. You know? <laughs> and what he does, and, uh, boy, it's kind of involved. I really can't get into it, but he, he marries... Um, you know, what really creates a mania is not... Like the tool of mania that, that people talk about in, in Holland really wasn't a, a bubble because the government didn't invest in it. The government didn't print money to sustain this false economy. Well, John Law also was also the head of the, the uh, French Mint, so he could print money. At first it began by lending money, and then when you run out of, when, when people start asking for their money back or they want to exchange it for, you know, specie, uh, commodities like gold and silver, then he starts printing money, and finally, there, you know, it, it becomes this wild inflationary cycle. It's all being based around this, uh, you know, uh, Mississippi company. They're supposed to be investing their money in, in uh, exploring overseas, but nothing's going on there. He's just investing money in money. It's a giant Ponzi scheme, in other words, and, mm-hmm. and it collapses on him terribly, and the whole country collapses. And then England imitates it, and their whole economy collapses, too, so... It was not a very happy period in the life of France and England. But for but a short, be, short, short while, he was a wonder boy. I mean, he was on the cover oh, of gosh. their Fortune magazine, could do no wrong, and he bailed yeah, out a lot of people. Yeah, could do no wrong. Right. Right. And, yeah. for, you know, and he, yeah, he could maintain the illusion because he was the one printing the money. Uh, just sort of like an Alan Greenspan figure, you know. I mean, for, when, when Greenspan retired in 2006, he was hailed worldwide mm-hmm. as a miracle worker. And it's not to say that Greenspan was a John Law. He, he was, I personally, I think More he did a lot of, you know, <laughs> he's not a Bernie Madoff, right? That's, uh, yeah, right. Yeah. But, uh, but, but uh, nonetheless, um, he succeeded, uh, Greenspan succeeded to a large degree by printing money, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, and what that story is, when our readers get the book and read the details, it will sound like it's lifted out of today's headlines. And in fact, Honestly. They, they have learned nothing. Uh, the public has learned nothing. The, 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 you know, you talked about the bubbles with the tulips. You're right. The government wasn't involved. It was more like the, the dot com bubble we had here. Right. Whereas if you had, a, a, you know, a new IPO with dot com in it, uh, it was gonna automatically be a big hit, and you better get on board. If you miss it, you're gonna miss your chance to being the Microsoft millionaire. And of course, you right. know, we, we see see Nasdaq right now. 
is worth about 45% of what it was in 2000 uh, once the bubble burst. So there's nothing new under the sun, as the Bible says. And also, there, there, you can't get something from nothing. And, and I think looking at history from your book, it just shows that aside of increasing productivity, producing goods and services that advance the public you know, in a long-term way, there's no other shell game that can be done that can last very long at all. For the advancement no, and there's one other takeaway message from the book, and uh, and this is uh, something that Jesus has introduced, and that is the sacredness of marriage. And uh, if you get married and stay married, the chances of see, Al Gore got the, he's getting divorced. Yeah, that was our news today, uh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, if you get married and stay married, uh, your chances for, you know, I mean, for, forget the, the whole moral, right. uh, wholesome elements of marriage, your economic future and the economic future of your children will be much stronger. And the economic future of the nation will be much stronger. Mm-hmm. Because what happened is when marriage collapsed, uh, people on Wall Street didn't notice it and kept on giving loans to single people as though they were, you know, Ozzie and Harriet, and they weren't. Uh, plus the message of staying out of debt. That's another big message of yeah. your book, too. Live within the means right. that God has provided for you. Because not only can it ruin you and your family... But all of your neighbors, people at church, people in your own community, try to keep up with the Joneses or the Cash Hills yeah. or whoever. They see you living that. They think something's wrong with them. Well, how come they're able to do it and we can't? So then they dive in. It becomes this peer pressure thing, and everybody goes down together based upon a complete misunderstanding uh, and That's a exactly desire right. to hear hear what we want to hear. And, and all of it's ungodly. And, and I think that sort of goes back a little bit to what I took that Calvin was implying. You need to look at the total picture of what you're doing and the impact it's going to have on you, your family, the people getting the, getting the loan, the people giving it out, uh, your community as a whole. You really need to stop and look at what is the whole impact of your actions. And I think you're right. And, and, and Calvin was uh, right. He, he saw, and, and Christianity in general saw, that uh, the economy is not something separate from the moral order. It's an integral part of the moral order. Mm-hmm. And that's a God-centered moral order. And if it remains that, it will succeed. If it ceases to be that, then you need a whole lot of rules and regulations, and they may or may not get enforced. You know? Mm-hmm. Well, you, you know, if the dominionists have their way, they want to take over every element of seven mountains of society, and one of them is, is business. Uh, and they want right. to impose their, their rules on it. Unfortunately... A large portion of the Christians I know are, are terrible examples of the wisdom that you just shared and are some of the leading yeah. causes of the problem, and I hate to see them spread yeah. that further. If, if you li- see the kind, of, the kind of cars and the kind of lavish lifestyles that you see in our local churches, uh, I'd hate to have yeah. to pollute other people with that kind of thing. When, when you have a society when, that when people fall, they have to pay their own price and are not bailed out, that has a means of being self-correcting. And while it can right. be painful to a small group of people, when you see them pay that pain, people, you know, rights the ship and you get back on the right course. The bailout is really sort of a co-enabling thing to an alcoholic, isn't it, that that delays the capability yeah. for wellness for a society? That's right. Uh, yeah, it just, right, it just compounds the problem. What what did you want to, we, we, we've hinted at these things, but what, what do you really hope to accomplish with with your very very useful book, what was your real goal when you put all of this energy and research into doing it? 
Well, you know what I what I'm hoping will happen, and and this will this will take uh, someone more influential than I am. It's introduced another element into the debate about why the economy went wrong and why it went right and how it can be righted again. And I think unless you talk about the moral and cultural foundation of the culture, um, then you, you're not talking about anything that of any lasting or, you know, sustainable value. It's not just about dollars and cents. It's about the people. In fact, I wrote a book about people. I mean, because I, people are more interesting to me than in dollars and cents, and uh, if the people are right and if the people are thinking right, the economy will work. If they're not, they won't, you know. Well, your book is almost like a collection of parables because in telling the stories of real people throughout history, these are the kind of parables Jesus told of cause and effect, and that sticks with people better than just a dry yeah. message. And I, and I have to say your book, to me, was more effective in bringing these points home than any other Christian book I had seen on finance, it, it, it having some of these deeper truths be very, very clear and self-evident from the history, you know, of what people had led. Uh, and it's a, it's a fascinating read. And it, well, you know, it, it's, um, it's an interesting analogy. I hadn't thought about that as parables, but you're right. I try to tell stories about people. And, and in those stories, the reader can see what works and what doesn't. The difference between, say, Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin, you know, uh, why Charles Ponzi did what he did and what he what came of him. What happened with Bernie Madoff, you know, for instance. Uh, J.P. Morgan or the Medici or the Rothschilds. Uh, I mean, his, this is, these are stories of people in time making good decisions or bad decisions and the consequences of those decisions on the whole culture and the whole economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, what can our listeners do once, once they've heard this material on our show and, and, and hopefully have gotten your book? What do you recommend are the main things they do constructively with the information that you share? Well, uh, first of all, I'd say go to my website, cashflow.com, and uh, the book is Popes and Bankers, and you can get a signed copy right to my website. If you want to, you can go to, it should be in most bookstores or Amazon, wherever you go. Do you charge but, um, any usury I, uh, for sale of that book? There? <laughs> no. Okay. In fact, uh, uh, the, the price you pay on my website for a signed copy, is the signed first edition, is no more than you would at your local bookstore. Okay. Um now, the, uh, I would say uh, what they could do, and this is, depends on the individual. I, I close with uh, a, 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 with Dave Ramsey, whom I, the, uh, uh, who's a Christian and an uh, economic advisor, who's very severe, a very real fundamentalist when it comes to debt. I can say that. But I went to see one of his concerts, and um, I, it was intriguing to watch. And uh, the message, I think, he's talking to people who are the equivalent of, of economic alcoholics. Yeah. You know, who need no. to be, uh, who need to go on the wagon. Now we all don't, we aren't all in that place, but for people who are, and he's a good place to start in terms of recommending, uh, dramatic behavior in terms of way to change your own life. I would say for people though who want to enter the argument and enter the debate, I think what this book does is it arms you to enter the economic debate. So you can enter it knowledgeably and have a point of view that's rooted in reality. And, I mean, I, I, I work hard to make some of the more esoteric uh, terms, you know, understandable, like mm-hmm. credit default swaps and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But it's not really about that. That's just the, that's just the end game. It's, it's about helping people understand how we created this Tower of Babel in our own midst out of the moral equivalent of Chinese wallboard and what we can do to strengthen it and build a, 
a real foundation that, that works and that goes forward. Mm-hmm. And, and and what is moral and soul strengthening will also be the most productive and financially lucrative yeah. in the long term of a society. That's right. It's not a coincidence that Judeo-Christian culture built the world's greatest economy. It's a cause and effect. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting. And it, it, however, in its hubris, it could collapse on itself if it doesn't yep. keep the moral part of it front and center and not let the Wall, right. and Wall Streets and the Madison Avenues take over uh, you know, the, the, the largesse and the profit that God has blessed us with. That's right. And it, it's, there's no guarantee that, that we can sustain this, especially if we, uh, if we repudiate uh, the obvious will of God in, our, in going forward. Well, I'd like to close with a with a thought to our listeners from the book of Acts. Uh, the the people that of the early church, the new church, which was this new experiment that nobody knew about, they says they were remarked, they were of good report with all people, because they were gracious and sharing things amongst themselves, and they loved each other deeply. Uh, and what they did was of high integrity, and because of this, they were able to win more converts to the faith. So I just want to let people know that when you start thinking that, well, whether I go buy this and sort of stretch myself on time, and if it doesn't go well, I can just, you know, I can declare bankruptcy. I can get out of it. Everybody does it. I can do these things. There is a moral consequence to you and to society in your faith and sharing your belief with other people. Uh, if you believe God is a God who sustains you, uh, who provides for all your needs, do your financial decisions reflect that belief in that reality, and uh, I certainly recommend people getting your book to have a, a really a holistic description, understanding of what has happened in world history and what God has taught us through the experiences of history over and over again about what is healthy and unhealthy in this area. And uh, given that I wholeheartedly endorse your book and suggest our listeners get it, how can they get the book again? They said you can go to your site, correct, and get it directly. Yeah, just Castle.com, C-A-S-H-I-L-L.com. You get a signed copy or I go to Amazon or wherever you buy books. So your local bookstore should have it as well. Um, so it's uh, it just came out a month or so ago, and uh, it should be out there unless someone bought all your local copies yeah. out, which I hope they did. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, but you can. I, I'd go for the signed copy because you never know when that's going to have value, you know. So. Well, well. Plus, <laughs> if you do something notorious in society, it would probably be worth a lot more money on eBay. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's right, that, exactly. If you do that later. Uh, I, I know you're pretty prolific in writing a lot of books. The next one that you write, would you come back to Future Quake and talk to us a little bit more about that one when it comes out? Uh, yeah, I'll be happy to. I'm working on it right now, and it, it, it should be a humdinger. So. Any any hints to us what it might be? Yeah, it's about, the, it's about the, the work I've been doing for the last year or so on the authorship of uh, Dreams from My Father. Okay. Uh, and the the real story behind that. So uh, I'll, I'll leave you there, and we'll wow. as a as a team. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, uh, thank you so much, Mr. Gash, for joining with us. I yeah. really appreciate your great interview. Your, your very valuable time to come well, with us. Well, thank you, sir. Uh, and and what we've learned, what we've actually advanced in the faith by what you shared, and I certainly look forward to you coming back again on our show. Well, thank you, Mike, and thank you, Mike, and mm-hmm. uh, you guys keep up the good work. Okay. Okay. All well, right. we'll talk to you soon. Thanks again. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom, in full promotion mode of the Dr. Future and Tom Bionic Collins show. Future Quake Live show.
Future Quake Live. Yeah. And uh, in conclusion of our discussion with Jack Cashel, first time visitor to Future Quake. Mm-hmm. Hopefully um, not the last. I hope, hope not either because his book was a very, very enlightened book. He's a very skillful writer. And uh, um, I read a lot of books where you cringe a few times, you know, even though the information is good. Mm-hmm. This is a, a skilled writer that wrote this. Hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I find it interesting when it talks about the idea of most lending, particularly to people you knew, was considered an act of charity, and that's why usury was considered bad or charging interest mm. in the fact that you were actually doing it as a ministry, that you were actually you were loaning Jesus money. Mm. And that's a pretty heavy thing when you think about loaning Jesus money. And as we said in the show, since he died for us, redeemed us with his precious blood, it's sort of hard to like charge him interest in return, you know? Yeah. Although, like, Jesus didn't need that much money, you know? Yeah. But sometimes he sends people... You know, he he didn't always need a lot of water either. I mean, he created all the water on the earth. But yeah. he says sometimes when somebody comes to you needing a cup of water, it's like you give it to me. Yeah. Sure. Or clothing or a place to stay, mm-hmm. you know? Son of man didn't have a place to, to put his head. But yet he says, I will come to you looking for a place to stay sometimes. Yeah. And that's that's pretty heavy. So they believe that it was an extension of your belief in God. And the fact that, well, you know what the scripture says? He says, what you do in secret, God will reward openly. Hmm. And that's, that's another pretty heavy thought. Because it really is a fact, do you really trust me? Do you trust me that it is my nature to bless you? That I want to bless you? That if you bless other people, even in secret, that you know I saw it and that will not go unregarded. Mm-hmm. That almost sounds sort of selfish by its mm-hmm. very aspect, but God doesn't see it that way. He says, do it all you want. He, he encourages, he, he, you know, getting treasures in heaven. It's true. He says, yeah, hoard all you want. <laughs> hoard all you want. But, you know, people who walk around in burlap and sackcloth and poor areas, of course, they're the ones that are the real kingpins. Yeah. They're the ones that are the big, t- <laughs> the titans of Heavenly Wall Street. All the treasures in heaven. Yeah, they're the titans of Mr. the Heavenly Burns Wall Street. Of heaven. yeah. Mr. Burns, that's right. Um, we're coming up to the end here, last minute. Uh, the, just a, a last comment, since we've interrupted every show, talking yeah. about our upcoming show. They will actually, uh, when listeners go to that website, Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll hear us do the news, this mm-hmm. kind of thing, and then there'll be an opportunity for them to call in after that. Yeah. What I would recommend is going there, searching TalkShoe.com, who's graciously allowed yeah. us to do this. Uh, uh, TalkShoe.com for Mighty Tom's Community Call, uh, and then hit the – there'll be a, a, a join-in thing, and it takes you to sort of like a you know, like a instant messaging type thing yeah. where there'll be other people there. And uh-huh. We'll do the news, maybe one, maybe two right. segments. And then after that, we'll put a call call out for people to start taking phone calls, uh, you know, and hopefully we can get it done one at a time. And yeah. And be it. thinking about what you want to ask us. Mm-hmm. Either something that we just talked about in the news or something since mm-hmm. then or something you've always wanted to ask us. Yeah. And we'll talk about it on air. Yeah, just be aware that uh, Tom Vionic's got a pretty sensitive hang-up finger. Just be productive. Be, 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 be really useful like you are in your emails that you send yeah. us. You know, something very constructive yeah. and useful. Uh, somebody name, else useful. Name calling will get you hung yeah. up on. Somebody else useful is Merv who can tell you how to contact us at FutureQuake. FutureQuake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com suitable for downloading or streaming as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com 
That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. We've got to go. All right. Come back for a double whammy of tomorrow's tremors tomorrow and Friday. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom, uh, not a pope or a banker. So um, there's some real foreshadowing for you. Well, actually, it's past shadowing since we've just finished our interviews. Oh, okay. Yeah, and uh, appreciate Jack Cashel being with us. I yes. hope you all enjoyed the show. Um, since uh, he is one of these high-demand people that has do tons of interviews, he, he was limited in his time with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, hence, it gave us an opportunity to have a two-day uh, tomorrow's tremors, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I, I went on and said it today because tomorrow I ask you. It's Actually, not Friday, no, that's not it, that's incorrect because that's not really it. What is it? It's tomorrow's tremors or today's future review of the news. No, it's not that either. It's today's review of the future's news. Oh, one of those things. Uh huh. Yeah, <laughs> you were still able to mess it up on Thursday, ladies and gentlemen. Even with you, even with you announcing. It. Yes. <laughs> you had to interrupt me to say it wrong. Yeah. Uh, it's great to be back with you again today, and. Uh, um, we've got a big news story that by the time you hear this is probably old hat, but uh, it was a big story at the time of uh, our recording. We need to talk about that if you don't mind. Sure. But uh, we had a couple emails we were going to read. Okay. And you suggested that uh, we maybe do, split them. Yeah. Why don't we do one a day? Well, can I can I read the one that uh, this one? Read, not, read the one that read the one that badmouths me the most. Oh well, wait, they both. Which yeah, which of those with <laughs> that day? That's. There's a large stack. No, you don't get bad mouth. Usually it's me. Um, <clears throat> this is an interesting one. Uh, it was uh, from Tab from Pennsylvania. Uh, he said that uh, we could read it. He says, Dear Dr. Future and Tom Bionic, I've been listening to you now for several months and agree with you on most points you make on your show, especially about the Illuminati, Freemasons, and aliens. One thing that does bother me is that you both seem to make fun of and completely disregard any threat from that cult of Islam truly poses to anyone not of their faith. I think you should take a look into the testimonies of Walid Shabbat or I think Noni Darwish or Noni Darwish, no, not Ergen Kane. Ex-Muslims that are trying to warn people about the third holy war being waged to take over the world for Islam through Sharia law. Uh, Good interviews of them both are on YouTube. Uh, Europe is a good testimony to these plans slowly coming to fruition. After studying Bible eschatology, I honestly can't decide which empire I believe the Antichrist will eventually. Uh, be ruling, whether it's the one built by the Illuminati, communist hidden elite, or if it will be a revived Turkish Islam empire. The Muslims and the communists are currently using each other to make their power grabs over portions of the world, but eventually they will turn from enslaving the common people of nations and clash directly. I think possibly one of those empires will rise first with a false antichrist and will fall in order to trick people into believing that the antichrist came and went and the world won against him. And then the other empire will rise up and the true antichrist will take charge of that. What do you believe of the threat of Islam and the identity of the empire of the antichrist? You can read this letter if you wish. Mm-hmm. All Your right. thoughts? 
I'm hitting you cold with this. There was yeah, absolutely is, no preparatory work yeah, for this is, whatsoever. That is a little bit cold. Uh, in 30 seconds or less. Uh, you don't have to use 30. Use whatever oh, you want. Okay. Well, I just don't want it to be like... And then at hour 40. Lay it off. Okay. Uh, my thoughts are that uh, the Muslims and uh, the Islamic threat specifically, in some cases, is a very legitimate threat. There really are people out there that want to blow us up. However, that's being co-opted by a... Uh, by another power center, especially here in the United States, and to a lesser extent, uh, certainly in Great Britain, and to and I guess even a lesser extent in Europe, uh, that they're using subterfuge in many cases and using them uh, to build this other this other power center, being the New World Order, is using that to build a uh, police state and a way to sort of track every citizen 24 hours a day and to know anything and everything about them. Uh, and as evidence of that is that nearly every uh, every sort of failed uh, uh, terrorist attack in recent memory has been has been basically had some sort of a government hand on it. Huh. Uh, the Christmas Day bomber, uh, uh, that guy was spotted being checked onto the airplane uh, by a trial lawyer, no less. Mm-hmm. Uh, a trial lawyer spotted them getting on the airplane uh, and being escorted through security by a government, somebody who flashed a badge in a government, mm-hmm. a government person. Uh, the Undersecretary of Homeland Security said, believe you me, if they're in this country, we know that they're here and we want them here. Mm-hmm. That's a direct quote from him in front of Congress. Uh, there's been other gentlemen. Uh, there were the, the guys who wanted to do, he wanted, they wanted to blow up a, a building in New York. Uh, the name escapes me. And uh, they said, well, we caught all these people and boy, aren't we, aren't we awesome. And then at the press conference, it came out that uh, the ringleader was an FBI informant. Yeah, uh, or not an informant, an undercover agent who went mosque by mosque to get these people who were of limited inte- yeah. uh, intellect, and then formed this thing, gave them the money, gave them the guns, and then arrested them all. Okay. Uh, and so there's several there's several instances like that. So they're that. being used to serve somebody else's purpose. Sure. Yep. As uh, a as a boogeyman. Yeah, and we uh, and I would add to that we see, uh, you know, we see of course Revelation 18, the kings of the earth and the great merchants of the earth. Uh, uh, being the people that that God seems to be really angry at over, you know, mm-hmm. when he destroys Babylon. Uh, an interesting side note is is this Yahoo story that I that I uh, covered last week, where they picked up some people that uh, escaped the explosion and destruction of the Deepwater Horizon well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Transocean, the, the company I think who owns mm-hmm. that and BP rents from. This is related to Islam. Uh, no, this this is related to the to the gentleman's larger okay. larger speech. Um, uh, they picked these people up and in complete disregard of the law kept them locked in a locked in a room mm-hmm. um, and it's like laws don't matter for large corporations right uh, but we have to go get the Islamic boogeyman I see what you're saying yes so Revelation 18 style the Bible gives a hint at what the ultimate last enemies are mm-hmm. that truly enslave and in fact Revelation 18 says they enslave and control us well and I it's very clear and yeah yeah and, and I mean I don't want to I don't want to make light necessarily of uh, of the gentleman. I think there, if you go through and look at the prophecies of the Assyrian, you can make a you can make a case that uh, the Antichrist very well may be Assyrian. However, the Assyrian Empire is basically defunct, so that means uh, there's it's entirely plausible that the Assyrian, uh, if you take him to be the Antichrist, mm-hmm. can come from any number of countries. Mm-hmm. He could be he could be a Jewish Assyrian guy, mm-hmm. and just happen to be of this Assyrian. Uh, ancestry, mm-hmm. and right. you know he could be a. Well, I don't. 
he would probably stand out if he was a Chinese or Syrian. But <laughs> <laughs> right, I know what you're saying. Yeah, the point right. is, the point is, is that is that uh, well, that's my point. Those are my points. Okay. You want to take a shot at that or no? Well, uh, this is isn't this a great topic to get ourselves in deep water with and split our audience? Awesome. This is uh, you know, of course, we always shy away from quick. controversy. Yeah. Uh, here, here's some. This relates to my current thinking. Okay, so. Uh, Brother Tab, please bear with me. Uh, first of all, I believe we see through a mirror darkly, and we all need to cut each other some slack, okay? Uh, and and I need to abide by that, and I hope the rest of us do too. Um, it, there are some interesting things I observe with Islam. Uh, first of all, I acknowledge that there are there have been seasons in the world where Islam, people of Islam, have killed Christians. Sure. Okay. Now. To find out the true story of what went on, I'm having a harder and harder time deciphering in history what exactly no, happened. Nobody's, nobody's hands like, are perfect. Well, for clean. example, I just learned recently on the History Channel, uh, you know, when we've seen the burning of Washington, D.C., the, the, the White House, mm-hmm. and how terrible the British were, I just learned that we actually burnt down the, the Canadian Parliament shortly before that, and it was wow. a retaliatory act, which totally changes your view of things. And I think all of us are susceptible to being, you know, having access to partial information. Mm-hmm. So I speak about historical things with some trepidation. Uh, I hear from missionaries and from groups like Martyrs from the World that mm-hmm. there are parts of the world today where Islamic people, particularly out in the rural areas, have done, have killed and done harmful things to Christians, like in Sudan mm-hmm. and places like that. Also, the same groups like Martyrs of the World and others say Hindus are doing it to them. We know Catholics and Protestants have done these things to each other as well, too. Mm-hmm. And they've all used their religious beliefs, including Christians, to use these as a justification mm-hmm. uh, for it. Um, a couple of ironies that I see, and this would be very controversial, but when we, we look at people of Islam, uh, they share, from a Christian perspective, a lot in common with Judaism. In that they both believe in a monotheistic God, a God of Abraham. Now, some people say well, he, they believe in moon God, but they, they believe is the God of Abraham. But they deny Jesus Christ as being... Uh, now, Islam says that he is a great prophet. They will not embrace his, his uh, divinity, divinity. Yeah. much like the Arians and others, who was a part of a, a, you know, an issue in the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think at the time of Nicaea and others. Mm-hmm. The, Jews, on the other hand, have a much lower version uh, of Christ. Yeah, well, especially uh, some of the reading that I've been doing recently. I hate to interrupt you. I'm sorry. That's okay. The Council of... Uh, after 70 A.D., all the Jews that survived, the Pharisaical Jews mm-hmm. that really survived it, the teachers of the law, convened in uh, a town called Yazne. Mm-hmm. And uh, they got together and they said, well, pretty much by every standard that we can possibly measure, it seems like God hates us now. So yeah. what does that mean? And rather than say, well, maybe we should accept Jesus Christ. Maybe right. we made a mistake here because right. it certainly, it, what we thought was heretical mm-hmm. certainly is taking off. They said, no. Uh, we just need to spiritualize this thing, yeah. and, uh, um, and I forgive uh, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing this, but this whole idea of uh, the Merkaba, which later became, which was sort of this, uh, you know, everything was very heavily spiritualized and kind of kind of nutty. Um, that was eventually sort of the seed that was used when uh, uh, the Moorish Jews in in 1200 uh, started Kabbalah. Mm-hmm. So. Ah, 
Interesting. Yeah. You know, th- these are all very difficult things to get your arms around to try to think clearly and step out of our culture. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we, we had uh, this book on we talked about from Michael Bajan, which I think gives a new age viewpoint mm-hmm. of all of us. They lump all three of our monotheistic religions together mm-hmm. as all being a threat to them and being a threat to their authority. While the three monotheistic religions fight each other right now and attack mm-hmm. each other, they, they want to dispense with all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, from a Bible standpoint, the best I can understand is that... Uh, with, as far as Judaism goes, there is a um, a group of people who attempt to follow the law, as Judaism teaches, and are serious about it. Mm-hmm. Then there are a group that has no intention, that says that they are Jewish by their their history, by mm-hmm. their belief, who they are. Mm-hmm. Jesus called the Pharisees that. He said, yeah. your father's the devil. Yeah. So there's another set of those that do that. And then one day, there will be an even smaller set that will actually respond in repentance, a remnant that will respond, fulfilling the plan of God uh, in the conclusion uh, of this age, mm-hmm. and it will come to redemption. But the Bible indicates there will be a very, very small group, yeah. and that the other ones will succumb to their rejection of Christ. Uh, I'm not trying to paint all three relig- monotheistic religions the same. As a Christian, I believe that Jesus Christ will be the one standing at judgment, and he will be the one making the call on all of us as far as... In the heaven, I think Christianity teaches that very clearly, and that's what would distinguish Christianity from these other two faiths: is is uh, uh, meeting Christ's requirement uh, for that is a requirement for it. But as far as Islam goes, uh, obviously it was created after the Bible times, so it doesn't refer to it directly. There is some reference to some nations in the Arab regions. Uh, that had issues, you know, they talk about Ishmael, that had issues, and we see indications that strongly correlate to today. Mm-hmm. But the religion didn't exist per se, but it is a, people naturally would put correlate the two together, yeah. even though Islam, the largest Islamic country is um, Indonesia. I was going to say Indonesia. Second largest is India, which has nothing to do with the Holy Land itself, but yeah. we still see a correlation. Um, what I hear from missionaries is that... Um, Jesus himself is appearing to a lot mm-hmm. of devout Muslims that seek God. I presume they're sort of like Cornelius. They're people who fear God and try to give to the poor, like it says in Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Mm-hmm. And God is responding and revealing himself and who he is, mm-hmm. and they're responding. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the Bible says, he who seeks finds. Sure. And when, when those people hear the more excellent way, they respond openly mm-hmm. and embrace it. And that is happening, and missionaries are saying that's happening in large measure. In the Old Testament, it indicates that it will affect even nations in that area, like Egypt and Syria, mm-hmm. will come under the blessings of God. He calls them his people, which is an amazing thing that most mm-hmm. people don't comment on. He calls Israel his inheritance, but he calls it like the people of Syria and Egypt his people. And you go read about it in the Old Testament, but they come to him in mm-hmm. fullness. So I think we need to be very, very careful to not go farther than God does in trying to isolate and demonize people, uh, you know, until that time comes. It's all going to come down to Jesus Christ. Only through Jesus sure. Christ is anyone going to find favor uh, with God. But um, I, my, my sense is, my guess of reading Scripture and understanding it, is that we will see, as the Bible indicates, a massive turn to Christ of those who are sincerely trying to find God in that faith, and maybe even other faiths too, will find him come to Jesus Christ. But but also there will probably be a remnant that will get behind a leader uh, that's talked in Scripture as Gog. Uh, and I think he is described very much like the 12th Imam, mm-hmm. uh, that they believe that he will come out of Mecca, much like the Amalekites did, 
Uh, he will take over Saudi Arabia. He'll take over the lands of that area and then come from the north down on Israel. And I think God will permanently deal with uh, Islam at that time. Hmm. So he will he will spare the few that are legitimate that want to find him. He will make his revelation clear. And our missionaries out there are doing a wonderful job also, uh, sh- living and showing Christ to them. The rest of them will be destroyed for their rejection and defiance of God and his plans. Yeah. So that's the best I can see of things. That's a very um, uh, a very well thought out. Uh, and that's off that? the cuff. But uh, like. do you have anything else you want to add on that? Um Yeah, but nothing that would contribute significantly. Okay. Well, uh, in closing, he mentioned Walid Shabbat and others. Walid Shabbat, from what I've seen of his testimony, he believes that basically the whole thing, Antichrist and everything, as best I can interpret his eschatology, is all Islam. That everything is totally Islam. And I cannot see how, for example, you mentioned the Babylon, the great city. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in fact, we even have the Great Whore Babylon in Revelation 17 and others. Mm-hmm. I, I really don't see clearly how Islam can entotal all of that. Sure. They may be part of a rebellion and judgment that occurs, uh, you know, in the last days, but I can't see that they can entotal all of it. Sure. Um, I, well, if I say any more, I'm going to open a huge can of worms. That'll just well, I probably already have already. The yeah. can of worms is already open. But, Tab, uh, that's the best I can determine yeah. uh, what's going on. Thanks for your email, by the way. You know, we don't do... We don't spend a whole lot of time, like a lot of Christian ministers, particularly prophecy ones, every week after week, you know, saying that they're a menace and that they're out to kill us all and they're all basically sharpening their scimitars trying to kill us. Mm-hmm. Because I personally know people who are Muslim and others who just want to raise their kids and just want to practice their faith quietly. And mm-hmm. they've never mentioned anything about wanting to kill me. No. So it's all, Well, it's all a big plot. Now, are there evil people in Islam? Sure. Because there's evil people everywhere. There's evil people in Christianity. I know. Uh, there, I think of a few of them. You know, I mean, Islam is going to have dominionists, just like sure. people in Judaism and people in other, in New Age obviously has it. Christians mm-hmm. have it. Uh, there are people who are opportunists. They want to take sure. control. I wonder if they took and Mooney, give everybody I wonder if they took Mooney. Mooney. I, I don't know. It's hard to say know. really fast. I don't know. But anyway. I hope I made that a little clear, but I'm still open to new data and information. Sure, me too. So anyway. actually, I, I'm not. I'm not. I, I'm, That's I it. You're just it uh, <laughs> no more to learn. You've I've got, got it, it all. all. Yeah. You see through a mirror clearly, yeah. evidently. There's no more darkly. It's just <laughs> I just see. It's not even a mirror. I just yeah. see. It's like seeing through glass. Brother Tab, thanks for the email. Yeah. Uh, hang with us, buddy. We we're gonna all have a lot of surprises, including us, mm-hmm. as God's plan unfolds. So we'll, we'll see what happens from there. But I will say, pray for your enemies. Mm-hmm. And if your enemy is Islam, Hindu, New Age, whatever it is, pray for our enemies. Yeah, because Jesus told us to. If we're your enemies, pray. Extra. We'll pray for us. Pray for us if you're friends too. Yeah, and I think we are. <laughs> um, did you want to have anything to say about what's happened today with uh, the? Uh, you know, I don't know all the data, so why don't you? Can I share just a little bit? Yeah, why don't you lay it out on us? Okay. You you you, you would really presented some very interesting. I don't have stuff a time before for the show. all of the info. I tried to be. Is broad in the different sources, but this is one of the most holistic ones. Okay. okay. Consider the source, okay, for all of these. Prison Planet, Paul Joseph Watson. Um, newly released video footage of the Israeli raid on the humanitarian aid ship heading to Gaza shows passengers attacking IDF soldiers before they landed on board. But activists claim this was a legitimate response to the fact that commandos had already fired upon and killed at least one passenger before they attempted to seize the ship. 
well, let me say that this has actually been corroborated. Uh, somewhat like Fox News and some mm. of the conservative outlets uh, poo-pooed anything like this. Sure. But a member of their parliament, the Knesset, was on board that ship, and they said on CNN that the Israeli boats were firing on the ship five minutes before they ever boarded. Wow. That that really puts a big change in everything. So, and I watched a video uh, linked here that was actually done on board, where you can actually see it while the person was on board, mm-hmm. and uh, they showed somebody who was dead already before the before they were coming down, mm-hmm. and then they brought the camera up on deck, and then you could see the repelling coming down, and it was like a barroom fight right on the deck with this guy holding a camera in front of it. The the the, the soldiers were landing like a foot away from the guy with a handheld camera. Wow. It was the weirdest thing. Um, it says, the only thing that seems clear about yesterday's tragic incident is the fact that Israeli forces illegally and aggressively boarded a humanitarian aid ship that was sailing in international waters. What happened afterwards takes two completely different directions depending on what propaganda you listen to. Now, this is a point that I have. It is so hard to separate out the the spin that I, I listened to Israeli, I listened uh, to their newspapers, I read Al Jazeera, I read our own sources, other mm-hmm. different ones, and they all put a completely different spin. And I think we all need to be a little careful where we fall and try to focus on the part that's hopefully indisputable. Um, it says, claims that the activists on board represented an armada of hate are not backed up by the video shot on board before the incident. The fact that around 20 passengers were killed Whereas IDF troops were only injured shows that the activists had not prepared a terror ambush, as some quarters of the media claim. Yeah, I remember hearing that on NPR. Some guy saying, look, this was an aggressive act. They attacked him with clubs and knives. Well, if you're a commando, I mean, that sounds like you've got two automatic weapons and a you know, night right. vision. And well, wait. I've heard from missile? conservative sources online know. and some some Israeli sites, but... Most of the Israeli sites I saw condemned this act, by the way. thought oh, it was stupid. Very interesting. But um, several of them, including on Fox News, said, well, you know, all they did was take paintballs on board, paintball guns. No, I don't believe that. To fire. So I, I don't know if that's normal for special operations forces to use paintball guns well, to I attack mean, people. Uh, but they later, 20 people were dead. So um, That is a powerful paintball gun. Yeah. Now maybe they implied they had other backup guns too. But it was uh, it was pretty bad. It says there could be no doubt that the activists on board the ship immediately set about the soldiers with poles and other weapons as soon as they were lowered on board by rope from helicopter station above. And that video has been shown all over the internet where they show poles hitting them with. Now they they showed about how terrible it was for one soldier. They threw him overboard Uh into the water. Yeah. Which I'm thinking is probably the safest place for him to be. And also for them, because he had automatic guns on him, either they're going to try to fight over the automatic guns or just get him out of there. So I, it looked they, they said they were lynching, but I saw them. They picked him up. It was like one of those battle royals where they filmed over the yeah, top rope. They chucked him on over the boat. From what I could tell from the video, um, it says from uh, they were lowered on rope from helicopter station above. A fact still being stupidly denied by Palestinian activist media organizations. And let me say, this is another irony, of all of the media watching all day today from all sides, 
the most balanced group of people I've found so far is Alex Jones and InfoWars. Huh, that's interesting. Alex Jones, when he was talking about on the radio today, he said, look, he says it's hard to make out what's going on. He says the, some of the, in fact, he had a guest on. He was laying a lot of this information out. He says, well, wait. He says, we don't know all the facts yet. He says, this is still, you know, sort of a crazy thing to do, how they did it. He says, I don't hate Israel. I don't hate them. They have a right to be safe and protected. Uh, but do they have a right to do it to this extent? So I found him to be, ironically, one of the more balanced voices in this whole incident. This whole thing sounds really, really odd. You know, I, I, there, there's some, there's some, maybe, maybe several even subtexts going on that we are not privy to. I, I, I got several articles. I know we don't have time for them, but can I just do a quick one from uh, the Jerusalem uh, Post? Okay. This is typical of how they're responding in Israel to this. Okay. Okay. Uh, it's called "Where Is God." Uh, yesterday at 11 a.m., air raid siren across the country. Emergency crews went into prediction, and it goes on and on. In this chilling scene, the school children were shepherded to safety. The innocence of our nation's youth was disrupted by the den of the alarm. Thankfully, it was a drill. Okay, and it says, uh, the colonel says here, here in Israel, we train for those as well as for enemy attacks. Uh, and it says, while the government tried to calm the country's nerve, assuring us that this exercise was routine and bore no relation to the dire state of the region, it was hard to escape the feeling that something ominous is in the air. Indeed, the headlines of late have been filled with all sorts of warnings and threats. In the past few days, Syrian dictator Assad talked about war and embracing the resistance option, and they go on and on and on, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, in the meantime, our closest ally, the United States, has quickly, uh, increasingly turned hostile to us and our interests, badgering us to take still more concession to our enemies. Like it or not, we are very much a nation that is dwelling alone. In the face of all this, there is a knife-like question piercing through the fog of fear. Where is God? I might take this as a challenge to divine justice, but that is not what I intend. I am a man of faith, and I believe our deliverance will surely come. What I mean to say is, where is God in our public discourse? This is talking about this within Israel. Why aren't we turning to him in this hour of need? Sure, diplomacy and military readiness are crucial, and we must continue to invest our efforts. But when the piercing siren sounded yesterday, brought to mind the wailing of the shofar in Yom Kippur. Uh, the spiritual wake-up call, sounding to arouse us and jolt us into action, we can choose to ignore it, but we do so at our own peril. Uh, and it, it says uh, here, a dash of humility and a healthy dose of faith are just as critical to ensuring success. That's why I'd like to see our leaders projecting a little less conceit and a lot more conviction. How refreshing it would be to hear them invoking some reliance on the Almighty and putting God back into the national conversation, injecting the sacred into their public discourse and ours. Well, they they did, but they put the the rabbis in with the the military to give them higher morale. So, well, that's true, and yeah, and they have sort of, idea. you know, empowered them more like testosterone. It says yeah. this is more than just semantics. It goes to the very heart of the challenges we face. Belief in a higher power and in the justness of our cause is our spiritual ammunition. Hmm giving us strength and determination to turn back any foe. Uh, that was a provocative thing because it is basically missing in the Israeli dialogue. Sure. The sophisticated modern Israeli dialogue, talking about God and turning to him, sadly, is only a very, very small minority of people who are strongly disliked or hated by the rest of the population. Hmm. Interesting points. Now, you can imagine that's why God says he's got a lot of work to do there. It's like, whoa. And you know what? I don't think you and I can do it. I don't think you and I can accomplish as much as we want to get in there and make them what God wants them to be. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Well, you think I, you I know mean, how God's going to do it? Well, I think probably a good start would be uh, instead of instead of uh, going over to Israel and spending all our money 
on on vacations and stuff, it might not be a bad idea to go over there and evangelize. Oh wait, you can't do that by law. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And yet, and yet, no, a number of Christian ministries go take, anyway. How about take Bibles in or your CDs and leave them everywhere? Give them to our Christian That's missionaries. A good idea. In Israel, Israel, I'll take a well. Case. Israel and Palestine, Israel and Palestine. Let's both places go sit them in. Yeah, man. Okay. Let's, let's also send in Merv to tell you how to contact this future. Quake. Ah. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Doctor Future and Tom Bionic at Doctor Future at futurequake.com. That's D R F U T U R E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the shows, topics, or guests, or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we got to go. Okay, let's get out of here. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for uh, being with us today. Come back tomorrow. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom. I carry a paintball gun. Bionic. You must be attacking boats then. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, it's great to be back with you for a traditional Friday show. Which is what, Tom Bionic? What does Friday mean? It is Revelation 18 news. Well, that's okay. Good enough. Tomorrow's tremors are today's review of the future's news. Uh, we appreciate our our guest Jack Cashel being in Monday through Wednesday. Uh, yesterday, as you say, is controversy quake. We probably still have two listeners still yeah. listening to the segment. Uh, you know, that was such a rush. I had to say things so quick on such a complex topic. Uh-huh. We need just to take a whole week, you and I, talk about this stuff. That'd be interesting. Put Bible verses out there, lay them out, sure. chew on them, challenge Everybody, what we say. Not all who call themselves a Jew. Debunk each other. Israel. Yeah. Revelation. Yeah. Um, Revelation and same of Christians. Yeah. I mean, it's not everybody says they're a Christian. There's people who say, Lord, Lord, sure. didn't I do this in your name? You say, you know. First Peter 2. I never knew you. Yep. So it's not that. just the Jews. Never Christians mind. are going to be the same thing, too. Yeah. I mean, ones who aren't what they are. Mm-hmm. And what does Jesus say? I have sheep not of this fold mm-hmm. that you've not seen. So Jesus has some wild cards he's going to show us in the last days. I know. I'd never want to play poker against him. No, I was, that's a good idea. Yeah. I used to say your arm's too short to box with God. Well, poker would be another one to add. It would be a tough one. Uh, I have a, uh, a much less controversial email. Okay. Tab, I hope you're still listening. We love you, brother. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for sharing. We know you love Jesus, and you're like us. You're trying to figure out what's going on. So, mm-hmm. um, This is a, a really neat email from Doris, Sister Doris out there. It says, Hello, I just wanted to let you know that when I found your radio show, I thought both you and Tom were crazy. Ding, ding, ding. So <laughs> I thought that would be a universally shared experience of our yeah. experience. I kept, there's 500,000 heads all nodding. Right, all nodding. I kept being drawn back to what you might have on the show and would listen periodically. I thought some of the things you were talking about were from outer space. Craziness. Then I started checking the other resources and found that what you were saying was credible. Now I listen every day on my way home from work. 
Uh, I don't know if it's on WNO or not, but let us know, Doris, yeah. if you listen on locally. This week, you had on the information about the Apostolic Reformation. I did some research and saw other information and the people involved. I have always loved Revelation and want to know about the end times and look for the signs every day. They're everywhere. I'm a born-again Christian and love the <laughs> Lord with all my heart. This Reformation would really show how even the elect will be deceived. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Matthew 24:24. I have three grown children and four grandchildren. And I had to tell them about this. I may not live long enough to see all of this take place, but I want my children and grandchildren to be aware and watching all the time for the traps that the devil is setting for Christians. Thank you for spending your days and nights checking out this information and bringing it to us. There are so many things that are behind the scenes, it's hard to catch all of it. Mm -hmm. And she goes on and concludes with, thanks for all your hard work. Awesome. Mr. Doris, thank you for... You know, and that's indicative for our other listeners out there who just drop the line and say, hey, really appreciate all you all do. Appreciate you putting the time you put into doing this. Um, they don't, People don't know how critical that is for us. Yeah, I know. Because we get stressed out with life and other kind of things, and you think, you, why are we going through all this? But between this and, uh, well, between this and work and verse-by-verse Bible teaching and some other stuff that I do, I'll bet you I have, and, and all this research mm-hmm. that I've been doing for both yeah. this and some other... Uh, something else that'll come out here in the future. Um, I'll bet you I have like maybe a half hour a day where I sit and do nothing, and that's right before I go to bed, so I can like decompress. Right. You know, and I know that you're the same way, or probably even much worse. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a mad race yeah. to get ready for every week, and like the book we did this week, I mean, mm-hmm. I was still reading it right up to the last second. You know, it's the like show a, it's just a race to meet every deadline. It's Not like that a, I'm whining to everybody. I mean, glad the Lord's given an opportunity to do sure. this. But but, but uh, in a certain sense, it is like hanging like five by twelve pieces of sheets of drywall by yourself. It's like two hundred pounds. You hang it, you put it up over your yeah. head, you drill it in place yeah. with like three screws, and you go, ah. Oh. And you know, and then you look back, and the pile's like five hundred sheets. Right, and people are so different. Not everybody's going to really, you know, really have a mm-hmm. big G whiz incident with everything we have. Different people like different things, whether it's a conspiracy thing or the New World Order stuff mm-hmm. or aliens or you know, UFO things or just prophecy. Um, and so we try to rotate things. And there's a lot of stuff that's had a lot of attention, and I yep. pass on it, even though it may be pretty decent, mm-hmm. to try to show the stuff that maybe is overlooked. Yeah. And so it's always a challenge. I appreciate everybody cutting us some slack and even our crazy opinions. Just yeah. listen for a while. We'll probably change them. So yeah. just hang in there with us. Just you, No, just get mad at Tom Bionic and... Yeah, or just get mad at Tom Bionic. That'd be great. I'll I'll share it with you on email. There's a long line. I'll say, you don't know the half of it with Tom Bionic. You want it? Yeah, we'll we'll do a whole show where Tom Bionic's not here about... You know what we'll do is I'll have a ceremony. I'll put my hands on you, and then I'll send you to Azazel. I was going to say... And they'll send Tom Bionic off the cliff. How about that? Yeah. And then they'll sacrifice me, so you go off the cliff, like, cut my neck. Yeah. Okay, fellow scapegoat, uh, got a story for us? Um, yeah, there are many stories here. Do you want to hear about? Do you want a short one or a long one, or um, real interesting, juicy one? Okay, one that will just shock us. <laughs> I had to laugh when I read this. It's it's short, uh, but I'll read it. Uh, IBM patent application describes intelligent stoplights that turn off cars. <laughs> and I read that, and I and I thought. What on earth could possibly go wrong with that? Yeah. (laughs) 
Uh, I'll just give you two paragraphs from it. Running red lights and failure to stop leads to untold numbers of traffic accidents around the world. Sitting at red light at a red light with cars idling also burns fuel that really isn't needed. IBM has filed a patent application that outlines a system that would turn the motors of a car off at a traffic light to conserve fuel. Few will take issue with green technology that conserves fuel, saves them money, and reduces pollution. However, there is a dark side to the patent application that privacy advocates will not like. The system IBM is proposing has to have access to the engine of the vehicles at the light to stop the engine. With access to the engine, the traffic lights can not only stop the engine of a driver's car, but also can also determine the duration that the engine is stopped. And then when the light is over, it can start the motors of the cars uh, up in sequential order so that the first cars at the light get to go first. The system would use GPS data to know where the vehicles were located at the light. I mean, you've got some, like, just nuttiness and uh, totally dark side there, too. Mm -hmm. So I just thought I would share that real quick. Well, also, like if you're trying to run away from New World Order people, that would come in handy for them to yep. shut you down if you're trying yep. to run away from mm -hmm. the Antichrist. Yep. Y you know, the irony, though, is if we go to more of these hybrid cars, don't they have a feature that normally turns the uh, gas engine off mm -hmm. and then it just starts when you're at really high speed? Um, then it automatically go off the gas engine anyway when you're say, setting. I think so. The in hybrids. Yeah. The, well, I thought the way that the hybrid works is it it's like a like a gas assist when you're going up hills or something. So. Yeah, but but it automatically turns the gasoline engine on and off. Yeah. If you're under high stress, obviously you're not in a high stress load when you're setting at a light. Mm hmm You know, and you take off under electric power. That's the, I'm sure they're all different, but that was one. So. Uh, can I share a quick one? All right. This is from Live Science, which is uh, it's like Wired magazine. It's for techie people. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Today's college students lack empathy. And what, what caught this eye for me is that, you know, I was just spending some time with the Lord yesterday and trying to really think, sort of step out of the, the rat race for a minute mm -hmm. and think, what is it that I really want the Lord, making a resolution, mm -hmm. what I want for the next 12 months, what I really want. The, there was two things I wanted. I wanted to have more empathy for people. Well, that's interesting because you have a lot of empathy. Well, I don't. I don't have nearly enough. I mean, to really look at somebody and before I judge them, think, what have they been through? Can I really understand why they're acting, even if they're grumpy or difficult to be with? Mm -hmm. To understand what they're dealing with and to be able to actually be concerned about it. Mm -hmm. You don't care. And the other thing is to be more uh, gentle. You you do a great you job of being very gentle uh, and reconciler and empathic. Well, you do, I don't, man. You do? I, you know, we just live in a culture. Thank you for that. You're very nice to say that. You, I wouldn't say it unless it was true. We live in a culture, in American culture, where tough guys are the big thing, whether it's mm -hmm. sports or military or whatever. Yeah. You know, being the the real tough kind of guy is the always celebrated. Is sort of gentleness. I mean, who really rewards gentleness? God, I don't think I've ever Jesus. seen a, a high school letter given to the most gentle person. A big G. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? How many awards have yeah. you seen, you That'd know, the cool. big man on campus? Look, that's the most gentle man on campus. You, you know, have, we talk about gentlemen, yeah. but it doesn't mean anything. No, and, and, and even even when it was used used of a certain class of people, they were not gentlemen. They were just, that means they didn't do work. They didn't <laughs> do manual labor. But, but, you know, even in the church now, mm -hmm. they're wanting to sort of, Paint over the gentleness of Jesus. Say, no, he was a real warrior. And yeah, he, just he, he took may that have healed people, but people that, was, out. that was before he had a, yeah. had a huge sword. Don't, he was don't talk about that gentle. People's heads don't off. talk about that gentle thing. You know, yeah. next thing you'll be talking about that blessed of the peacemakers. You yeah. know, just doesn't. Before fit. he was anointed, there before he was baptized, he drove a tank around. We really. <laughs> 
We really are the Spartans. I mean, our culture is the Spartan culture. Yeah, ex- of, well, of except war that the Spartans, in your face. Except that the Spartans were very, you know, as, as warlike as they were, were very healthy and um, at least moderately intelligent. Yeah. We're and they sort of fought. Fluoride, they sort know. of fought fairly too. Yeah, you know? we're, we're full technology, of fluoride. And, you know, sixty-five percent of people are uh, like morbidly obese. Well, that's why this empathy story today caught my eye. Going back okay, to empathy, sorry, okay? Sorry. That's okay. No, uh, college students today are less likely to get the emotions of others. Than their counterparts 20 and 30 years ago. Get huh. meaning, you know, grasp, understand. Yeah. Uh, a re- new review study suggests specifically today's students scored 40% lower on a measure of empathy than their elders did. The findings are based on a review of 72 studies of 14,000 American college students overall conducted between 1979 and 2009. We found the biggest drop in empathy after the year 2000 said Sarah Conrad, researcher at University of Michigan's Institute for Social Research. The study was presented this week at the annual meeting of the Association of Psychological Science in Boston. Is Generation Me all about me? Uh, compared with college students of the late 70s, current students are less likely to agree with statements such as, quote, I sometimes try to understand my friends better by imagining things, uh, how things look from their perspective, and, quote, I often have tender, concerned feelings for people less fortunate than me. Hmm. So now people don't relate to those uh, opinions. Many people see the current group of college students, sometimes called Generation Me, as one of the most self-centered, narcissistic, competitive, confident, individualistic in recent history, says Conrad. I would totally agree with that. Well, which, which also is the uh, like the indigo children. I think that's what they try to say. That that's why the Space Brothers created them because they had that kind of thing. So maybe that's what they are. Uh, it says, uh, uh, it's a, a graduate student says, it's not surprising that this growing emphasis on the self is accompanied by a corresponding devaluation of others. Uh, the recent studies have shown mixed results on the character of today's youth. For example, one study of more, more than 450,000 high school seniors born at different time periods showed today's youth are no more self-centered than their parents were at their age. Even so, Conrath and O'Brien suggest several reasons for the lower empathy they found, including the ever-increasing exposure to media in the current generation. Compared to 30 years ago, the average American now is exposed to three times as much non-work-related information, Conrath says. In terms of media content, this generation of college students grew up with video games and a growing uh, body of research, including work done by my colleagues in Michigan, is establishing that exposure to violent media numbs people to the pain of others. Hmm. Surprise, surprise. The rise in social media could also play a role. The ease of having, quote, friends online may make people more likely to just tune out when they don't feel like responding to others' problems, a behavior that could carry over offline. In fact, past research has suggested college students are addicted to social media. Other possible causes include a society today that is hyper-competitive and focused on success, as well as the fast-paced nature of today in which people are less likely in time periods past to slow down to really listen to others. Mm-hmm. College students today may be so busy worrying about themselves and their own issues that they don't have time to spend empathizing with others or at least perceive as such time to be limited. Mm-hmm. The reason why I went all that, you know, in the last days it says the love of many will grow cold. Yeah. Children will be a disobedient parent, things like that. Mm-hmm. Those are the kind of traits that sort of get a back seat in prophecy talk. This is a big back deal. Back seat? They don't even get on the bus. If at all. But, you know, that's a big deal. But, you know, it's funny, too, because I just sent an email to somebody today defending today's generation. 
because they were saying that they were worthless and you know not nearly as important as you know the well, greatest sure, generation. But I think you have to be a little uh, empathic to those folks as well. It's not like, I mean, their brain has been poisoned by fluoride, aspartame, well, yeah, and and you know first person. And they didn't even games. mention fluoride in that. Uh, but you know, I look at somebody like Chris White. I look at uh, Andrew Hoffman. Mm-hmm. People like this. Um, they have not bought into the materialism Zero. of the prior generation. Yeah, uh, they're very real people in the Christian faith. They're not mm-hmm. like one in church and then a different person in the business world. Yeah, they're pretty much the same guy all the time. And yeah. they've got these amazing ministries going on and doing just wonderful things. You know, it's right. all about like what can I do? What can I do to advance God's kingdom today? Right. So that's why I'm, I'm hesitant to say everybody's all like that. And, and as far as the hyper competitiveness. I, from what I've seen, maybe I'm still looking back at Generation X, but a lot of them think that the best days are behind us for our nation and for the West. Yeah. And a lot of them don't have much, you know, type A. You know, maybe the Ivy League business schools, but the rest of them don't have much motivation at all, uh, you know, for stuff. So I wouldn't say it's their hyper-competitiveness. Yeah. Maybe just not interested, you know. And the Internet kind of thing, too, it's easy to flame somebody on an email, mm-hmm. something you would never tell somebody to their face. Yeah, you would never, ever say some of the stuff that comes through my yeah. through my yeah. email basket to me. Right. And that's but it's perfectly okay because you get to unmake that person on the other side. <laughs> I've noticed in debating in debating yeah. people online on uh-huh. forums and stuff, the first, thing, the first thing that really changes the whole flavor of the debate is uh, – when they say that you know you've got nothing, you're you're stupid and use a lot of foul language, is you go to them, you just go, was that really necessary? You know, I'm just sitting here in front of my computer, you know, and really personalize it in some way, mm-hmm. shape, or form. Right, right. And suddenly it's like they suddenly you can see that they're backtracking. Look, I'm not saying you're a bad person, but right, you know, it's made the tone much harsher. Mm-hmm. You got a story for us? All right. Ooh, ow. Arms sorry, I'm sorry that story was that painful for you. I don't know. I, I don't know what's going on with my 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 arm. Um, NATO, you know, the Bible says if your arm offends thee, cut it off. Where's the... Can we go get the chainsaw? I'm just trying to spiritualize things. Yeah, no. <laughs> Thanks. Mm-hmm. <coughs> uh, this is via the Guardian. Afghans believe U.S. is funding Taliban. Okay. Um, uh, well, CBS News does too. I know. I was going to say this is really more of a follow-up to what we were, yeah, what we what we talked about earlier. Yeah, CBS News showed proof. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly, by some miracle, the the article didn't once mention opium or anything. Hmm. Uh, but that's another that's another yeah. story. Um, anyway, I'll read it. It's near impossible to find anyone in Afghanistan that doesn't believe the U.S. Uh, is funding the Taliban. And it's the highly educated Afghan professionals, those employed by ISAF, USAID, international media organizations, and even advising U.S. diplomats who seem the most convinced. One Afghan friend who speaks flawless English and likes to quote Charles Dickens uh, and, and Anton Chekhov says the reason is clear. The U.S. has an interest in prolonging the conflict so as to stay in Afghanistan for the long term. And, and then it goes on there to really sort of speculate. Um, and since I didn't agree with all the speculation, I'm not going to read it. Okay. But um, uh, I think the point is very interesting that uh, according to this article, uh, you know, 80, 90, possibly close to 100 percent of Afghan, Afghans believe that the U.S. is uh, funding the Taliban, which is ex- precisely so, what we talked about. So have we accomplished anything, ago. really? 
if if we haven't won the hearts of the people, then then what really have we accomplished? We've lowered the street price of opium. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? I mean, they uh, they say Al Qaeda is still there, mm-hmm. so we haven't got rid of Al Qaeda in nine years. Sure, we and haven't caught the, we if, haven't caught a single individual located in a 200 mile stretch of mountainous territory. Uh, well, we've killed a few leaders uh, that were, were supposed to be killed before, yeah. and they recycle their yeah, names. Kill them over and over and over again yeah. three times. And we need to hear them in the news. Yeah. So, you know, we've done that. But aside from that, I don't see much that has been accomplished yep. in the war on terror. Is it just me? Next story. <laughs> okay. Okay, I'll try to have someone here to cheer up things. A All little right, bit. Give, me, give me something happy. Okay. I uh, just had it here. Monsanto. You like Monsanto. Oh, they're I in the They're in the top five on our list of recitations. There. Yeah. Citations. Monsanto's uh, Hades New Earthquake. Um, a new earthquake is what Haitian peasant farmer leader Chavanez Jean-Baptiste of the peasant movement of Pape is calling news that Monsanto will be dumping 60,000 seed sacks or 475 tons of hybrid corn seeds and vegetable seeds on Haiti. Seeds doused with highly toxic fungicides such as Therom, known to be extremely dangerous to farm workers. Hybrid seeds like GMO seeds, oh by the way this came from Huffington Post, mm-hmm. okay, uh, like GMO seeds in contrast to Creole heirloom organic seeds require lots of water, chemical fertilizers and pesticides. In addition, if a small farmer tries to save hybrid seeds after harvest, hybrid seeds usually do not breed true or grow very well in the second season, forcing the now indentured peasant to buy seeds from Monsanto or one of the other hybrid GMO seed monopolies in perpetuity. Monsanto wanted initially to dump GMO seeds on Haiti, uh, but even the corrupt Haitian government knew that this would spark a rebellion. Hmm. So Monsanto cleverly decided to dump hybrid seeds instead of GMO. The Haitian Small Farmers Organization has committed to burning Monsanto seeds. Good for them. Wow. And has called for a march to protest the corporation's presence in Haiti on June 4th for World Environment Day. I want to move to Haiti. These Haiti, no. They they have some sense. Yeah. I mean, they, they see, they, they, they know a real threat. And an earthquake that knocks out, you know, all your infrastructure is one thing. But real damage is when Monsanto shows up at your door. Yeah, well... You're talking about a permanent disaster. They though. may not have a functioning government, but at least they know they know that... You know, GMO foods are going to poison them. Farmers are smarter than a lot of us city-dwelling people. Yep. Uh, since gaining their independence from France more than 200 years ago in a bloody slave uprising, Haitian farmers have wisely protected their seeds and nurtured native crop varieties. They know that true food security is maintained by farmers who save, trade, and breed indigenous seeds by traditional organic methods. As Chavannes Jean-Baptiste, executive, uh, probably Chavon, uh, the executive director of the peasant movement of Pape wrote earlier, we need to establish seed banks and have silos where we can store our Creole seeds. Local organic seeds are the basis of food sovereignty. Hmm. That's an interesting term. It's urgent that Haitians buy local seeds. What's the danger we face today? Is that food from USA aid and others is getting dumped in the country. Monsanto's seeds will be distributed by the United States Agency for International Development, USAID Winner Program. It's a taxpayer-funded agency that promotes the United States' interests abroad. It is run by Dr. Rajiv Shah, an Obama appointee that the Organic Consumers Association opposed because of his work with the explicitly pro-GMO Gates Foundation. 
The Gates Foundation works closely with Monsanto. And I, I'm not surprised. Now, this is like the left-wing Huffington Post. Sounds like they're reading the Patriot, you know, byline. Yeah, yeah sure. No, well, okay. I mean, what's true is true, you know. People, uh, here's a good enough, as good enough of a reason to switch to Linux as anything. Bill the of, operating system. Yeah. Bill not Linux like the uh, heating air conditioning no, thing necessarily. No, we, you don't have a position on that. No, the okay. computer operating system. Trained, you know, okay. uh, you, you hear... Bill Gates say things at conventions like, what we need to do is redu- reduce the world's population through vaccines. Mm-hmm. What exactly does that mean? And then if you dig enough, he means, you know, put poisonous substances in vaccines, and then when you inject somebody in a third world country with it, then they die. Because their lives aren't as important. Yeah, because they're not, I mean, they didn't They didn't make OS, when, when OS 7, so, mm-hmm. you know, that's as good a reason as any to... To run yeah, they don't have Mandriva enough disposable income yeah. for a company like Microsoft to run around. Yep. So, okay. It's part of small part of getting out of Babylon. There's our high maybe, horse. Maybe not so smart. No, I think I think Linux would be an interesting thing. I know. Anything to stick it to the man. Yep. You got another story for us? Okay. I've got a last one if you're out, but if you got one. No, I got I got a ton of them here. It's just like. Uh, that one is. I really want to read it, but it's too long. Um, let, let me let me go this one. It's a little okay, short. Three minutes. Okay. France admitted on Sunday. This is France warns on credit rating. This is via Reuters. France admitted on Sunday that keeping its top-notch credit rating would be a quote-unquote stretch. Without some tough budget decisions, following German hints that Berlin may resort to raising taxes to help bring down its deficit. Eurozone trade unions are preparing for possible confrontations in the coming weeks if governments impose austerity measures or labor reforms unilaterally. But ministers made clear that ready, uh, they were ready to take unpopular steps to, to prevent the Greek debt crisis spreading to their economies, although doubts are growing about whether the Spanish government in particular has enough support to get its way. Mm. Uh, and of course, well, uh, never mind. Budget Minister Francois Borogne uh, and I'm sure I didn't pronounce that right. Sorry, sorry, Mr. Budget Minister. Indicated on Sunday that France should not take for granted its AAA rating, which allows Paris to borrow relatively cheaply on international markets and finance its big budget deficit. The objective of keeping a AAA rating is is an objective that is a stretch, and it is an objective that, in fact, partially informs the economic policies we want to have. Uh, we must maintain our AAA rating, reduce our debt to avoid being too dependent on the market, and we must do this for the long term. Um, Brown later clarified that the target was a demanding objective, uh, which we're committed to. France's forecast is deficit to hit 8%, which is still uh, lower than ours, I believe, uh, but aims to bring it down to within the European Union's 3% limit uh, by 2013, uh, which is a pretty substantial cut in debt, really, mm-hmm. for a large, uh, large sovereign. Uh, talks are underway on pension reform, and Paris has frozen central government spending, barring pensions and interest payments, between 2011 and 2013. Uh, it is also considering a constitutional amendment to set binding budget deficits uh, limits. So even France is getting swept into this a formerly a formerly affluent country. I can't imagine that their farmers won't be hitting, you know, if like subsidies get cut and things like that because usually they will block all the roads and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're talking about we're talking about people that blew up a factory because they didn't get their way. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Well, I guess you've heard that they've downgraded Spain their bonds. Yeah, I was going I was going to bring that up. Yeah. And uh they're starting to have a domino effect and now You've got the London economists are recommending to Greece 
to get default yeah. and get out of the euro. Mm-hmm. So we might have three kings out of ten fall. Hmm, interesting. Who knows? Uh, we're coming up to the end here. I, the last story I was going to have, we'll save for another day, about uh, uh, the U.K. people exposed to chemical tests. Much of Britain was exposed to bacteria sprayed in secret trials uh, wow. between 1940 and 1979, um, biological weapons trials, uh, over vast swaths of the population without the public being told. Oh, man. That's terrible. You know, something that unites us with the rest of the world is yeah, our abuse go, of our citizens. But we've got to go get the Muslims. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, we need to go get uh, Merv, who can tell you how to con- contact us here at FutureQuake. FutureQuake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the shows, topics, or guests, or suggestions for future show, topics, or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, it's the end of another week. Ah, uh, well, there we have it. We'll have to turn over another rock for another topic for next week. Yep. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for putting up with us. And uh, just bear with us if you don't see eye to eye with us on issues. Just, just keep listening. Just wait around. Like Miss, uh, Miss Doris there. Yeah. Well, and you'll change to our opinion sooner or later. Or if you don't think we're crazy, maybe you will later. Yeah. But until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. Quake, quake, quake.